Hello everyone and welcome to episode 163 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, back for part 2B of our look at the year 1991 in the World Wrestling Federation, uh, a series that we've been doing with the great Kyle Ross from Top Rope Nation. Back today, lots of big topics to discuss covering the rest of April through to June. For those who might be hearing this part of the series first, if you don't want to join this mid-swing, if you don't want to join late to the party, go to squaredcirclegazette.podbean.com and catch up. So far, we've covered everything up to this point. We've talked about the Sergeant Slaughter push and the decision to go with him and Hulk Hogan as the main event of WrestleMania. We've talked about everything else that was going on on the undercard from January to March. On the last episode, we talked all about Sid Vicious jumping from WCW to the WWF, as well as covered the Hulk Hogan Sergeant Slaughter and Ultimate Warrior Undertaker feuds from April through the June. If you missed any of that, go back and check it out. Now, I should say that this is the final part of the 1991 series that we are releasing this year. Um, but we have had some requests and we will in fact be doing the SCG Radio Christmas show uh, right before Christmas. So the usual crew will be back with me, not round the oaken table, but via Skype. If you haven't heard one of those before, it's a mailbag format. Send your questions, your comments, your year-end awards, anything and everything that you want out there. Send it to us at scgradio at hotmail.com. That's scgradio at hotmail.com. Or, of course, post it on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash scgradio. We'll be posting the question. Send us whatever you want, any questions, comments, theories, anything you want on the world of wrestling, past, present, or future. Those shows are always a blast. Your contributions are usually hilarious. Uh, We look forward to it every year, and we're looking forward to this one. So get those emails, post in with us, and we'll be bringing you the 2020 SCG Christmas show very soon. With that said, without further ado, let's take you now to part 2B of our series on 1991 in the WWF, myself and Kyle Ross. Joining me on the line, my partner in crime covering early 90s WWF by way of the Top Rope Nation podcast, the one and only Kyle Ross joins me on the line. Kyle, very, very excited for this show today. Uh, A lot to talk about, and I hope that you're feeling as excited for this as I am. Yeah, we're going to hit the undercard here, April through June of 1991. Lots of interesting stuff to go on. I love when we get a chance to explore the undercards because I feel that just gives us more freedom and license to take the discussion in any random direction we damn well please. Uh, You know, I I respect how, you know, how we always look at the top of the card. It's done in a very thorough and, uh, you know, logical form. But this is more of a free-flowing discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, And speaking of the last podcast, by the way, uh, we talked a little bit about the dynamic that exists at this time with Hogan and Warrior, kind of a 1A, 1B baby face. And while that may sound ideal on paper, the issue has been the WWF never had two heels that were concurrently over. And that got me thinking to today and having split world champions or you know, a raw, you know, a universal world champion and a WWE champion. How many times have they had two over challengers since they've done that? Pretty slim over the yeah, years. Pretty so slim. It's, you know, it's not a good idea, really. One big feud is better than two okay feuds. Yeah, they've, 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 something they've historically struggled with. Uh, you, know, you, you kind of think back to like the best times for the brand extension, whenever that was. I guess a lot of people will draw back to maybe kind of the rise of Cena and Batista at the same time in 2005. When you look at that, like when you look at Batista's run on SmackDown that first year before kind of Edge came around, I mean, he's, you know, JBL, Mohamed Hassan was 
planned at one point for Batista that kind of fell through. They've never really been able to kind of, you know, Carly, you know, they've, they've, they've never really been able to kind of hit that. And again, that was the case. We talked about 1991 last uh, on the last show. Warrior and Taker, Red Hot Slaughter. Again, we were talking about this on the previous episode two ways, so you can go back and check that out. But doing really nothing with him because there's only so much focus you can put on something being the most intimidating, biggest deal in the company at, at one time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I just thought that was kind of an interesting way. I love when we go back and look at the stuff, making the comparisons today. Today, I really also never like to miss an opportunity to needle uh, 2020 <laughs> WWE television, which is, of course, just bloody awful, as you might say <laughs> over there. Yeah, putrid stuff. Uh, during this time frame, however, obviously not only are we going to be talking about the undercard from April to June, but we're going to be looking at the hirings and the firings outside of Sid, which we talked about on the last uh, podcast, as well as talking about the WBF pay-per-view, as well as one of the biggest stories of the year. And in terms of long-term implications, maybe the biggest, the trial of Dr. George Zahorian is going to be covered on this show. Uh, I think of no better way to get into it than just talking about the fallout, I guess, on the undercard of WrestleMania 7. Elsewhere on the card, Randy Savage, after WrestleMania 7, works both the March 25th and March 26th tapings as a babyface, ending one of the world's shortest retirements, pinning Rick Martel and Ted DiBiase in separate matches. This is obviously a note from the Wrestling Observer newsletter, so thank you very much, Dave Meltzer. The world's shortest retirement, says Dave, for Randy Savage. I, yeah, of course, you know, I did the job to the ultimate warrior at wrestlemania match that i can't say enough positive things about we talked about that on the yep. last show he also worked the uh japan tour uh including the big dome show so uh, it just wasn't martel dibiase he stayed kind of busy despite losing a retirement match at wrestlemania i did though this is in the case of the martel match which made tape uh it's on world tour 91 on the network if you'd like to check that out uh, they said that the match was signed before WrestleMania 7, and thus Randy uh, was simply fulfilling contractual obligations. Oh, wasn't that lovely? What what a nice way to tie it up. And what it really was, of course, because he had Liz with him, uh, it was a way for just him to have kind of a send-off to the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, a nice little As thing As a baby do. face, which is kind of odd based on the uh, how he was as a commentator, at least early on. Yeah, well, we're going to come to this now, actually, because Randy Savage, of course, does go on to join Vince and Piper in the booth for superstars. Uh, before that, backtrack. Right after WrestleMania 7, there's a series of vignettes with, like, Vince, Randy, and Liz in, like, a social club somewhere, talking about basically just how much he loves her. Um, although, pretty much during the entire time when Vince asks him how much he loves Liz, he pretty much ends up talking about himself, <laughs> which is quite, quite humorous. And then, of course, we get their reunion dance on the dance floor, uh, in front of a bunch of uh, bingo-playing crooners, I suppose. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a real sharp detour here, going from this kind of overly lovey-dovey, ultimate baby-facing of Randy Savage to in the booth, backing some of these nefarious actions from these heels. Yeah, you, and you know, it's funny, now that I, I'm glad that I wasn't losing my mind, because I did not see the reunion dance, I saw that you had it in the notes, I'm like, where is this? How did I miss it? And it occurred shortly after WrestleMania, you're saying? Yes. Okay, yeah, right, maybe, right after. Okay, maybe I didn't watch that week of Superstars or something like that because I kept waiting. I'm like, when's this reunion dance coming that Liam has in the notes? I have not <laughs> seen it yet. It was really pissing me off. I was like, I'm not going to go back and see if I like fast forwarded through something by accident or what. Yeah. But uh, they get it, wrong. it wasn't like it was John Travolta and Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction. And like, okay, like, there we go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, so Randy's very much a baby face when he leaves WrestleMania 7. And then they do this. 
But as we've mentioned, he's very much a heel announcer with Vince and Roddy, which is kind of odd. Hmm. Right? I mean, I guess they just wanted someone to play the heel announcer role because they always had a heel announcer in the booth. But, you know, again, given how Mania left off, it's kind of weird. It's almost like Savage no-sells the happenings a little bit. You know, when it comes to Sherry, they do mention, hey, Randy, you know, calm down. We know your feelings towards Sherry. So at least, uh, you know, there's some logic there. But it it was kind of odd how they had him as a heel for those first couple months. Yeah, it felt kind of inorganic. I think part of it is that it's clear the dynamic they want of Savage, not in the ring. Well, let's have him on commentary, but they've got Piper. You know, so you want like two guys doing the exact same thing, but you know, so instead we'll kind of shoot him in as a heel. You can have a little bit of conflict in the booth. Uh, clearly, it's what they wanted, but unfortunately, there's there's very little in terms of great calls that gets associated with this crew. Um, and as I think I mentioned on the last show, I miss Jesse a lot on Saturday Night's main event, uh, the, the April Saturday's main event, where kind of Savage and Piper kind of taking turns ducking in and out, and really feels like it's missing Jesse to really hit these big angles hard. Yeah, uh, you know, I guess they did, as time went on, they got better. Uh, You know, there was the ribbing, (laughs) the excessive ribbing of Roddy Piper (laughs) over not being part of the Health and Fitness Expo, which would be part of the WBF pay-per-view we'll talk about in a little bit of time. That that was a big shtick they had, because Randy was going to be there, and they kept making fun of the fact Roddy wouldn't. Uh, But it was all right. It was kind of like, like a three buddies or something like that. It almost came across by the end. Um, Yeah. You know, especially as we get into the teasing of the proposal (laughs) in late June, which felt a bit out of left field. Yeah. Clearly it's one of those things where this was around the time they'd figured out, okay, what are we going to do for SummerSlam? This is what we're going to do. I guess we're going to have to start in it. But that, to me, that's where this, this kind of a trio peaks is when Vince and Piper are kind of needling Randy about whether or not he's going to go for it. Yes, I absolutely. And yeah, the proposal itself is actually the first week after the period we're talking about today. So we're actually not going to talk about the proposal segment no. uh, that, that airs on Superstars. But yeah, it is good stuff when they keep, you know, it's funny because those last couple weeks in June, there's not a lot going on angle-wise in the promotion. And it seems like every match they somehow bring up, oh, you know, speaking of proposals and whatnot. <laughs> and it, it, it's amusing. It's okay. I don't mind them. Yeah, no, it'll do. Again, th- th- this did develop a little bit, but it's just, uh, it's, it's, again, it's very jarring to hear Savage after, you know, you want to cheer him after the big angle at Mania 7. It's like, here he is talking about how kind of, we'll get to it, but like the Mountie is in the right and <laughs> what happens with him and the boss man, which is an interesting take from Randy. But um, elsewhere, we, we talked about the two big angles uh, that took place to the kind of the shocking angles with you know, Hogan Fireball, the, the the Ultimate Warrior in the coffin uh, on part two A, the third shocking angle that we did mention, uh, but didn't go into thoroughly because it wasn't involved in the main events. Jake Roberts, the squashing of Damien by Earthquake. Uh, after the squashing of Damien, brings out his bigger brother Lucifer. Uh, in the interview where he introduces Lucifer, Jake says that what Earthquake did to Damien was no less than rape. <laughs> what is going on? In 1991 WWF, with all this rape, that isn't actually rape. No, Hulk Hogan getting hit with a fireball is not rape. (laughs) Damien getting squashed on, or sat on and squashed to death is not rape. It's actually murder. (laughs) Uh, Hogan, that's assault. 
So yeah, we're we're throwing around that R word pretty lo- loosely here. Yeah, uh, in April liberal. 1991, and for that matter, Roddy Piper, a lot of LAPD jokes. This, uh, you know what? I was uh, watching this period time back. Someone was obsessed with that story because it's that for like three weeks. Those LAPD jokes are everywhere. We talked about Heenan and Perfect at Mania, where Heenan's throwing them in liberally. It's like I think Piper even is it Piper? No, somebody else does get some LAPD jokes in at Mania as well. So. Yeah, this, it's pretty. They seem, they seem quite fond of that story. Yeah, and for those of you too young or those two that are old and have forgotten uh, what was going on at this time, was obviously the Rodney King beating. Mm. Uh, this was not the verdict uh, that occurred the following year, and then all hell broke loose. Uh, but yeah, the, the footage of the beating had just come out. Um, the the four police officers uh, from the LAPD and that. Uh, you know, spawned a lot of great rap albums, quite frankly. <laughs> not going to lie there. A boon uh, for the music community. Not great for yeah. race relations, but a boon to the music community. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, all right, let's talk about this Jake Earthquake angle, okay? I think a lot of people remember Damien getting squashed, and we get Quake Burgers, of course, on <laughs> Primetime Wrestling, a real treat. Uh, but the Jake Earthquake feud itself feels largely forgotten because there's no blow-off and it is basically just dropped by Midsummer. Yeah. You know, Meltzer has this note uh, much earlier in the year in an Observer. I pulled this, I believe it was all the way back in January, that Jake had been politicking behind the scenes to turn heel. Yeah, so he, he, he'd basically seen more opportunity on the heel side and the Bayface side for obvious reasons. The reasons we were talking about in the 1990 series. Yeah, I mean, you've got Hogan and Warrior. Those are your two top babyfaces. You're... If you're Jake Roberts, you're never going to be higher than number three. He looks at the pecking order on the heel side, which is pretty weak. You've got Undertaker, who's obviously catching fire, but Slaughter stinks. And everybody knows <laughs> that he's running out of fumes. So there's room to grow. I mean, this is the old Triple H. Yeah. Using to go babyface in 2000. Remember? Yes, indeed. He smartly saw the lay of the land, and he knew if he turned babyface, he wasn't getting past Austin and Rock. I mean, Lord knows they would have tried to and probably told us that he was better. But, you know, I think realistically (laughs) he understood that. That's why he wanted to stay heel. So I thought kind of a savvy move by Jake. And as we'll see, it was a very wise decision to turn. Yeah, great Um, decision. Like you say, this feud doesn't feel like it really goes anywhere after the initial promos from Jake regarding revenge. Again, it's a house show thing. Outside of a little bit of involvement on the Saturday Night's main event show with the Battle Royal, there's really not a lot else on television. I mean, there's promos, and they bring it up, uh, but yeah, there's no big blow-off match. Uh, On the World Tour tape that I referenced earlier that has the Savage Martell match, there is a Jake Earthquake match on there. But yeah, this feud was not blown off. We'll get into the direction they were going, but then kind of started yelling abort with that just in a moment. Uh, I think we do need to first, though, mention (laughs) when Earthquake sits on Damien, the cutaway to Sean Mooney's face in the event center. <laughs> I, I wonder if that was enough to satisfy the folks at PETA. <laughs> you know what? They did it with Gene too, didn't they? When they like when they do like the recap, where like yes. he's, 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 he hits the ropes, he goes for the splash, and right before contact gets made, it's because the Gene Oakland looking very stern and very very angry. Yes, Ron Bass, please do not take this country back to its darkest times. <laughs> There's a reference for you. <laughs> my favorite Mean Gene update line ever. Jesus. Oh, um, my God. We won't get into what that was about because it was <laughs> yeah. something that hasn't aged well at all. But, uh, yeah. So, 
it, it was clearly presented as one of the big angles in the mid card post mania, but it felt just like, hey, here's a baby face that we want to do something with. Here's a heel, and you're just kind of mixing a match, and you come up with this. You know, Earthquake being scared of snakes initially uh, because they had a run-in the week before, the squashing angle. Seemed like old hat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was whatever. It they, didn't really go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. They take a hard right turn with both guys pretty quickly because... They do their Superstars tapings on May 6th, where it's kind of detour, but bring it all back in the end. Andre the Giant is uh, interviewed by Mean Gene. All throughout April, they've been doing these vignettes with Andre speaking with every manager who's trying to hire him. And it ends up with him usually just kind of like spanking Sherry. Uh, and of course, the peak of this is a hideous, hideous meal with Mr. Fuji. Um, before we get to that, Jimmy Hart comes out, claims he has a contract with Andre, uh, when Andre says no, Earthquake very lightly clips Andre from behind uh, with a megaphone. Uh, it's supposed to be a very heavy angle, but uh, as Meltzer says here, told the angle and Andre in particular were really awful. Yeah, it was a bad angle. I, I guess the idea is, all right, let's get Andre back in the fold. But he clearly was in no condition to be back in the fold. Uh, the Mr. Fuji dinner. Let's talk <laughs> about this first. That made me chuckle. Oh man! I, I know. I know you refer to it as a hideous meal, and I don't know how the food was, but <laughs> it's just so ludicrous. This thing they're sitting at this ridiculously small table. Uh, you got Al Hayes, your boy, and Arnold Scullin sitting off in the background by themselves at separate tables, just kind of eavesdropping. And Fuji's trying to sell Andre on the idea that he can make him all this money and that he needs to be a bad guy. And that's where all the money is, which, uh, you know, flies in the face of, flies in the face of, you know, uh, what I had learned about wrestling. I thought all the big money was as a baby face. But uh, Mr. Fuji's (laughs) like, you make more money being devious. And Andre's like, how much more? And Fuji's like, millions. (laughs) It's just so preposterous. I want you because you big. Yes, it's just so ridiculous. Fuji, during this time period, was clearly in I don't give a fuck mode. Or maybe <laughs> or maybe he was just being just regular Mr. Fuji. I don't know. Because he has these promos. It's like, how is this allowed to air? <laughs> like, it's just so bad. The uh, inset interview he does with the Orient Express during a Rockers match, where he's like, my Orient Express loves chamber music, torture chamber music. And it's just like, oh, God. Fuji's, you know what? Fuji gets a lot of shit. I thought it was, you know, this is peak Fuji here. This this thing with uh, with Andre is probably at least the most I've ever enjoyed him because he was just like a nothing manager for so long. Yeah, and he gets his face shoved in a cake. Of course. Music. It's so ridiculous to watch. Uh, again, your boy Al Hayes sitting behind him <laughs> at the table. He's not looking at what happens, but he just starts laughing like uproariously once Fuji's face goes <laughs> in the cake. And he's wearing shades inside. <laughs> he's like staring at the wall. Like, who would see what kind of weirdo is like, give me the table in the back and I'm going to sit staring at the wall. (laughs) Well, he's got to look incognito for his reporting, even though there's a camera right in front, you know. Yeah, it's like, who didn't know that was Lord Alfred Hayes uh, (laughs) at that dinner? Uh, So, yeah, um, you know, Mr. Fuji, uh, you know, multi-time winner of worst manager of the year, gets a bad rep, uh, in my opinion. Again, love how Meltzer always points out he must have known where the bodies were buried because yeah. <laughs> he's the he had a long guy. run. Yeah, 
The original cleaner, Mr. Fuji. <laughs> the original cleaner, yes, before Kenny Omega. Um, but yeah, it, it seemed like he was having fun, for God's sake. God bless the man. Let's talk about the earthquake Andre angle. Yeah. Okay. The, the light clip of the knee is uh, certainly one way to put it. Um, mm. it was, you know, it was not uh, when Owen kicked his leg out of his uh, leg. That much. <laughs> yeah, the crowd didn't give a shit about that either. No, and I got to say, it was kind of sad watching yeah. here at this point. You know, they try to play it up big how he gets up and is refusing medical help, but it's like, it's just, ugh. like, you could, like, the way he's moving, it's just like, this man should not be, the idea that he could work just seems ludicrous. Yeah. And of course he doesn't. Well, yeah, I mean, he, just, he goes to Japan and works there, and if, if you've seen those matches, it is ludicrous. Yeah, yeah, it's true, but earthquake this is a really wild period for him just bouncing from angle to angle he does the thing with jake and now he's you know attacking andre the giant very different from his 1990 where you know he has the run obviously of his career opposite hogan yeah so this is this is and we talked about it on on the previous one earthquake without you know the being kind of programmed with beefcake it looks like before mania that goes nowhere for reasons we'll get to he then wrestles valentine at mania and beats him swiftly it really feels like he's you know as as happens these guys get cycled in and out and now he was clearly on the out cycle and just kind of looking for what to do next and it's it's, it seems strange that they seem to be in this kind of perpetual state of looking for the next big angle for earthquake when they kind of started three different things you know we'll get to the the next one in a second but you know the the andre thing the jake thing it's it feels like they really want to kind of keep Quake focused on, but they never really commit to anything. And, and what they end up committing with is probably the, the lesser of the three options, I suppose, in terms of prominence on the card. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's just a case of, hey, this guy was a really big deal last year. We should, you know, mm. keep trying to get something out of him. So I can't blame him for trying. It just no, not at all. None of the options were <laughs> all that great this year, you know. Again, it's always downhill. Uh, after working with Hulk Hogan, if you're a heel <laughs> during this time period in WWF, it just is. Um, yeah. We should also mention uh, Earthquake made some news over in Japan uh, in that match against Koji Katao, where Koji Katao like just grabbed the microphone and told the entire world that wrestling was fake. <laughs> yeah, so Katao had done the job at WrestleFest for Earthquake. Uh, the, the dome show that we talked about on the previous show, where Earthquake got a fantastic reaction. Was, Both uh, was... guys were former sumo wrestlers. Correct? Exactly. Yes, okay. they were, and that was kind of the main source of the heat because Tao, who was kind of a bit of an outcast anyway in, in that community, was not very happy with having to put over Earthquake. And when they said that he was going to do it again, he decides that uh, he's going to be a little bit pissy with Earthquake. And I guess that kind of like the rumors have gone back and forth throughout the day that something might happen. They get in the ring and they have this kind of standoff where. Nothing happens, really. They just kind of, like, eye up the other kind of... Earthquake at one point throws a rather humorous kind of kick <laughs> to, to kind of try and ward off Koji. But uh, after that, yeah, Katao just kind of gets out of the ring, takes the mic, says Rustin's fake, and bails. And this was seen as a victory for Earthquake in some circles. Yeah, and uh, pretty much the last we ever heard of Katao. <laughs> yeah. Needless, which... to say, needless to say, they were not happy with that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I have... Uh, certainly, as you have heard, a lot of people being upset about doing a job before in this industry. Uh, oh yeah, I don't think anyone else has ever gotten on the microphone and proclaimed wrestling to be fake. As a result, <laughs> well, I guess Austin Aries was close on that TNA pay per view. That's true. That's probably the but, closest yeah. I can come up with. 
you know, and of course, near and dear to your heart has got to be one of my favorites, Brian claiming, you know, it's time for neck surgery when Hogan was going to drop the leg on him in <laughs> 96. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's stuff. a lot brilliant. This is, come on. You, you can't get on the mic and tell everyone wrestling's fake. God, how shocking <laughs> would that have been to be there live? Yeah. It's, it's real when I win, but it's a, that's a classic. Yeah. Uh, and of course, after all of this, sitting on Damien, <laughs> clipping Andre, uh, <laughs> Staring idly by while someone proclaims professional wrestling to be fake, Earthquake winds up in a tag team. Yeah, again, just just like less than a month after they taped the Andre angle, um, May 28th to be specific, they tape Tugboat turning heel in a six-man tag match where he failed to tag in to help the Bushwhackers uh, in the six-man against Earthquake and the Nasty Boys. Uh, later in that taping, Tugboat came back out as Earthquake's tag team partner in a tag match billed as Typhoon, which, Meltzer notes, I assume means that Quake and Typhoon will be a heel tag team called the Natural Disasters. This leads to an inevitable feud, says Dave, with Andre the Giant and Jake Roberts, which is a natural disaster. <laughs> Thankfully, that feud was not inevitable. does not happen, but that is clearly where they were building. So when we're talking about, oh man, it seems like they're trying all this stuff, there was a plan, it seems. Yeah. And that tag feud was the plan per Andre's book. So Meltzer was right. Yeah. That I think at least at one point, the idea was Andre and Jake Roberts versus the natural disasters. But thankfully it does not happen. Andre, you know, I just, he just can't work at that point. And Jake of course goes heel, which is something we'll talk about in a different podcast. Uh, Andre does appear in the corner of not just Jake, but, Various other Earthquake opponents when Jake is hurt at the house show, such as Bret Hart, Jim Duggan, and Jim Neidhart. Jim Neidhart accompanied by Andre the Giant versus Earthquake. Yes. Uh, Bret got the win, by the way, over Earthquake. Oh. Yeah, using Andre's crutch. Uh, that, that was interesting. So uh, after that real rogues gallery, the disasters end up feuding with the Bushwhackers, who Tugboat turned on, as you mentioned. Uh, Andre seconds them at SummerSlam. And that's really no better uh, than a Jake Andre feud, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I kind of the bush. I mean, granted, I'm guessing the bushwhackers were there to be fed. Well, obviously they were there to be fed to them, so to, to get them ready for Andre and Jake, I suppose. Felt like it wasn't needed if that was the direction. And if that's if it's where it ended up going, I'm surprised they didn't stick the rockers in there just to at least kind of make them. Because I mean, I, I you know. I don't know about you, but like the natural disasters, I I I hated them as a kid. Like they were just so awful. Like to me, like as I, as a youngun, I just thought anytime they came out, I just dreaded it. See, I thought they were an even worse babyface team. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I should, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, like they, that was. I mean, the <laughs> natural disasters as babyfaces chasing money Inc. is the absolute nadir of the tag team division (laughs) uh, in this period and and maybe the death of it. Of course, Tugboat turns, I always remember the line, that's my buddy, Roddy Piper. Like, (laughs) just incredulous that Tugboat could do this. Uh, An Andre Jake team, by the way, would have been bad. Yeah, who's going to do the work? I guess Jake's, who's going to do the hot tag? You know, Andre's going to do the hot tag? Like, he can't move? Well, not just logistically in the ring, they had such a high-profile feud a couple years earlier where Andre was afraid of snakes. Terrified of them. Heart attack was teased. Yeah, so, and that wasn't really touched on. You know, they kind of tried to, you know, just gloss over that fact. And, you know, they did have Jake commenting on Earthquake uh, clipping Andre. So, again, it very clearly was a plan at one time. But uh, cooler heads prevailed, like you said, the natural disasters. Uh, get a push um, as the top heel team 
as we'll find out uh, in the months ahead. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's, I, can, I mean, you can totally see how on paper they would say Andre coming back, teaming with Jake after Damien's been killed against Earthquake and talk about who they pushed, you know, they, they treat him like he was a, a big deal. Turn him heel, this, could, you know, this would be a potential house show headliner, you know, on paper. But it all falls apart, and by falling apart, it pretty much is, again, but by, I guess, ultimately deciding Andre is not fit for this situation, that pretty much is kind of what kills it all. Yeah, and he's persona non grata after SummerSlam. Yeah, he's gone pretty much. Um, moving on, uh, Hawk from the Legion of Doom should be out for about six weeks or so with a herniated disc. Uh, so they'll be running Animal in singles matches everywhere that they are currently building Nasty Boys versus LOD tag team title matches. This was obviously a few that they'd started teasing on television with the, uh, the inset promos, LODs and the Nasties, but that's pretty much all they did to build that up. Yeah, the Hawk injury... Uh, is an interesting note because it really explains why there was no physical angle between LOD and the Nasty Boys on television. Uh, mm. th- there was a segment on the barber shop, uh, which we'll be getting to momentarily, uh, where the LOD chases the Nasties off. Yeah, but that's pretty much it for this tag team title feud. Uh, the Nasty Boys they get a win over the Bushwhackers on Saturday Night's main event. They go to a no contest with the Rockers on Superstars, but their reign pretty much sucked, and the tag division nosedived. During this period, of my opinion, you compare the tag division in 1991 to like two years earlier. Yes. And it, it, it's clearly fallen. I, you could argue the biggest highlights of the Nasty Boys title run was being involved in other people's angles. Like we talked about, uh, you know, they were in the six man where Tugboat turned and became Typhoon. And one more that we're going to get to here in a moment. Yeah. Um I, 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 just to, to kind of echo that point, the Nasties winning the belts at WrestleMania 7, we talked about that kind of being a very shocking decision. Um, just from a perspective of, I mean, 91, I mean, just look at the Survivor Series 91, the tag team Survivors match they do, but I mean, we'll get to it. But it really feels like this period of time, this next two years, where the Nasties, the Natural Disasters, and Money Inc. kind of headlined this division with the Beverlies and the Bushwhackers underneath, is this is just. It's 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 awful, and this it, it really all begins with the Nasties getting the belts. I mean, that's the start of it, and and like you say, they really once they get them. I mean, on paper, you think the Nasties and the LOD they could have if if Hawk's neck was in decent shape. You think that they, okay, this would be like a series of wild brawls, you know? They could really kind of go a different direction with this tag team division and make it kind of really interesting. And instead, it's just there's really nothing to this at all. And like you say, they they just feel like bit players. And not really particularly over until they're involved in something else. And obviously we mentioned the Earthquake uh, Typhoon formation. They shoot an angle very early in this period of time where the Nasties handcuff the boss man to the top rope uh, after a boss man squash match. And the Mountie comes out pretty much completely, you know, just <laughs> sauntering down the aisle ready to do his business uh, and shocks the boss man. I'd forgotten how hokey the sound effect was <laughs> until I relived this, but it's very clearly dubbed over the top and, uh, I, I guess I just thought this was, was much better at the time than it is when I look at it now. Yeah, I'll tell you what, the defund the police crowd would have had a field day with this feud, huh? <laughs> I was going to say, this is something you expect The Undertaker to book these days. Yeah, really. Um, okay, a boss man multi feud did seem quite natural, given the gimmicks, right? Yeah. Like, it, it was a very logical direction to go, um, you know, for Mountie's first big feud, and you're looking to do something with the boss man, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, it was foreshadowed, too. Before, even before they do the angle 
where Mountie, you know, shocks him with the cattle prod, they had been doing inset promos calling each other out. Yeah. So, I mean, that was okay. Uh, am I wrong for not hating the, quote, Canadian Mountie, as the boss <laughs> man always loved to refer him as? Well, yeah, the, the start of Superstars is telling you it's all about national pride, Kyle. Yes. Yes, it is. And I think it's about time that we go to the pages of the World Wrestling Federation magazine, Mr. <laughs> O'Rourke. Uh, I have oh, a please. wonderful collection of WWF magazines from this time period uh, that I'll be referencing, hopefully, as we move forward in this podcast series. Uh, this is from the May 1991 issue with The Undertaker on the cover. The article is called One Step Too Far, Boss Man and Mountie Clash Over Meaning of Justice. Are you ready for this? This was <laughs> actually written in a magazine uh, in the United States of America. Okay, here we go. On every police force, in every army, on every highway patrol, you can always have one, an individual who believes his badge entitles him to rights others don't have, that his uniform puts him above the law. This is the fellow who gives his partners a bad name. He snarls at a motorist over a traffic violation. He orders his subordinates to wash his car on official time. What a dick move that would be, huh? <laughs> Uh, instead of permitting a suspect to call his lawyer, he yanks the phone out of the wall and ties up the defendant with the cord. My God. I mean, <laughs> wow. Imagine when the lawyer gets there. Uh, go ahead. Do you have something you wanted to say? Cause this gets actually more preposterous as we go along. <laughs> I just love that. Like this is the, what a, the, the outrage over the defenseless American cop being beaten by multiple parties. Yeah. And <laughs> after the boss man had spent years beating up his opponent after he beat him. <laughs> By the way, that, that, that's a bit of a plot hole that we'll just skip over, I guess. By the way, this is Keith Elliott Greenberg with this wonderful prose. I'll yeah. continue. Big bot. Uh, so <laughs> as we left off in this story, we had, uh, you know, uh, rogue policemen tying up their suspects with uh, phone cords <laughs> in the interrogation room. Big boss man describes the Mountie as this type of lawman. The Mountie replies that he simply does, quote, whatever I have to do to always get my man. In conflict are Bossman and Mountie's personal philosophies. The enforcement of the law versus taking the law into one's own hands. The nightstick versus the cattle prod. Weakening a foe with the spike slam versus disabling him with the nerve-crushing uh, control technique. That was an odd finish, by the way, that I did not yeah. remember from the, the Mountie. Karate, the karate control technique. So this is funny because I... If anybody remembers the old WF uh, trading cards, the blue ones back in the day that I remember uh, seeing my friends have... There's like a, I remember there's like being a profile on the back of like the finishing move, and I never saw this karate control technique until I watched this stuff back, where it's that, you know, the guy gets sent off the rope, and it's basically like a grab him around the neck, and it's like a double handed chokeslam type of thing, yes. and he just kind of holds them there until they get pinned. Yes. All right. One more paragraph, and we'll be done with this ridiculous article, but I've, this is where it just gets absurd. Quote. Officers go into law enforcement for different reasons, says one police scientist. The majority <laughs> of them are fine, committed people who simply want to do the best they can to cure the ills of society, or at least make some kind of difference. Then you have the guy who's a bully by nature. Either he's been picked on his whole life and he's itching for revenge, or he's picked on everybody else and now he wants a job to take that role a bit further. I end with this. <laughs> He hesitates. This is the police scientist realizing that his statements are being reported in WWF magazine. <laughs> I guess your report, I guess you're going to ask the obvious question. He continues in which category do I place a guy like the Mountie? 
<laughs> who, who was this police scientist, I wonder? I know. I, I didn't know there were police scientists, really. That's a, right. a field I was unaware of. Oh, good grief. Yeah, I mean, I, actually, I, I did like the fact that the Mountie would do Mountie things in his squashes, too. Like, he'd put the guy's, like, arm behind his back, put, give him, like, a half Nelson, start ramming his head into the turnbuckle. That's, that's good stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I, you know, as we're going to talk about moving forward, this feud is not bad. And the payoff winds up being outstanding. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the, the coverage there is, is something to behold. Yes, it, it truly is, yes. And it, oh I mean, this God. keeps going on and on. Who knows? There's probably some other great quote that I'm missing in here. But again, that's the May, May 1991 issue of WWF Magazine. Undertaker on the cover, if anyone's got that at all. Like, yes, go look for it. This is good stuff. Uh, now, that being said, the Canadian Mountie, as you mentioned, uh, he gets mentioned as a lot. Tremendous heat regarding this character. Believe it or not, says Dave Meltzer, this item has made the front pages of newspapers throughout Canada, but the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is on the warpath against the WWF. Since February, the real Mounties have been trying, unsuccessfully, to get the WWF to drop the character. Uh, this is the reason the WWF shows now have the disclaimer that the Mountie isn't associated with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and has never trained with the force. What a piece of business this is, Delta. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police did not uh, get the Koji Katao memo. <laughs> no. Uh, they they, they're not. very uh, seething about this. And this, of course, leads to what? He gets billed to only a Jacques Rougeau in Canada. There's actually, yeah, there was footage not that long ago floating around of a Mountie promo where he's kind of shirtless. He doesn't have the getup. And he acts, I think Jimmy Hart calls him the Mountie. By accident, and you actually hear somebody off camera kind of groaning, like, ah, oh, you've called him the Mountie, the whole, but yeah, he's Jacques Rougeau, this is a Canadian promo. But uh, yeah, this is that's just the way this goes. He can no longer be the Mountie in Canada. Yeah. Uh, the Mountie, interesting, you know, how he was positioned, at least before the uh, boss man feud. He always seemed to be like on the death spot on a show. We talked about how at the Royal Rumble, uh, in January, they sent him and Coco Beware out to have a match so the crowd would not, quote, riot after Warrior Slaughter. <laughs> uh, you know, here I think, like, he was sent out after the Warrior Taker angle. I don't know. Because yes. I have this weird note in my, it, for me, it says, talk about the Mountie always being in death spots on the card. And I'm assuming that that was why I decided to have that on here. Get to the match with Tito at Mania as well, which goes like a... Yes, and that too. It's right before Hogan's Slaughter. It's the last match before the main event. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of Tito, by the way, uh, who also has another good effort against the Mountie on Saturday night's main event, uh, will be coming back with a new name and gimmick. Okay. Tito had been around for a while. Uh, you know, I think probably longer than anybody in the promotion so. at this point, right? I mean, yeah, he, he, goes, he went back even further than Hogan. He's pre-Hogan, so I don't think there's anybody else. Yeah, so you had to try something new at this point. It's been seven years. Uh, I'm not really sure El Matador was the correct answer, though. No, this, uh, yeah, I mean, the definition of a gimmick with a ceiling, this was really nothing more than a fresh coat of paint just to get, like, another year of life out of him. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the match that Tito had with the Mountie on Saturday's main event and the one that they had at WrestleMania. The match on Saturday's main event clearly much better. It was given uh, slightly more time, but uh, both still pretty short uh, affairs with Tito doing the job both times. Yeah, um, which is a shame because, again, we, as we talked about previously, Tio just had a lot to give. Um, it's, again, I got to needle this 2020 WWE. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's funny because we're talking about, oh, my God, Tito's been around for like seven years. That's so long. Everybody's been around for seven years today. I know. Well, that's it. Like, you look at these guys who, you know, ultimately, you know, Jake, you know, he's 
as what a six year run in total. And you yes. look at it, you know, but then you you look at these guys. It's like there's very few guys who haven't been in this company six years mm-hmm. and haven't done the loop. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Absolutely. Um, a very sad uh, thing that we have to address is coming shortly here. But Mr. Perfect also missed his bookings this week with an injury, I believe, to his back. Says Dave. Uh, Mr. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Perfect appears on the funeral parlor with a small coffin, uh, presumably threatening to kill Davy's new dog, which is uh, Winston. Um, a, a, a small coffin just to bury the dog. The bulldog, in return, cuts a rather completely terrible promo, uh, name-dropping potential opponents, which is Rick Martel, the Barbarian, and Mr. Perfect. But uh, Davy boy, not one for the microphone. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, as an owner of two dogs, this you know that segment really hit me hard, but I'll be honest with you, I was very upset. <laughs> And seeing that little casket. Um, this bull, this promo that uh, uh, Bulldog cuts that you had uh, labeled was terrible. I was very intrigued because I didn't know what it was going to be. So I was, every time he cut a promo, I was listening. And, I, and I'm pretty sure I know the one you're talking about. It was bad. Uh, which begs the question, why did this perfect Bulldog feud not click? You talk about forgotten feuds from mm. this era. Uh, this is certainly one of them. I mean, was it? That there was no, again, no physical angle, just like the tag title program. You know, they just sort of were programmed together, called each other out in inset promos, but they didn't do anything. They never cross-pollinate on television in a way where you can, like, see these guys actually, you know. Like you said, there's there's no real angle. There's nothing there. It's just like they're just kind of talking about each other in passing. Nothing of substance. And then, you know, part of that may have been that, again, like Hawk, an injury. Yes, this back injury. the back injury, obviously, uh, rather significant, as we'll come to learn, uh, you know, causes Perfect uh, not only to lose his Intercontinental title, but to uh, take more than a year off. Uh, that's, you know, part three uh, of this podcast. We'll get to that. Uh, but yeah, I think they made a wise choice not putting the Intercontinental title on Davy Boy Smith, especially given who eventually gets it. Yeah, and I know that there is, uh, I, I believe this also gets some kind of mention in the pages of WF Magazine at one point, isn't it? Like, Bulldog and Perfect's feud. Yes, I think I have it in here. <laughs> oh, terrific. But, but uh, I don't think it was particularly an interesting article. Yeah, here it's the it's not, June it's not 91. As juicy. It's not as juicy as the, uh, the, the, the Bossman Mountie effort. No, but uh, here it's actually on the cover of the June 91 issue. This is when they recap WrestleMania 7. The British Bulldog, can he improve on perfection? <laughs> not, not fucking primary cup. No, uh, far from uh, perfection. So, yeah, I just you know, well, Winston didn't last long either, did he? No, oh, he was he was he didn't seem to knock around that long. Because I, I had kind of for like as soon as he brought, I was like, oh yeah, I remember he had Winston. But I mean, I don't think like going in. I mean, obviously he doesn't have it. You know, when he wrestles Brett and Wembley a year later, he's, he's gone for most of ninety two. I can't really remember him being around in ninety two. Yeah, and you know. Moving forward, I don't think he has him that much. So it'll be interesting to see how long that lasts. I mean, he still has him uh, until, obviously, until the TV that we've watched through. So, yeah, I don't know. I just don't think Davey Boy Smith was actually that great here in 1991. And no. uh, they, they made the right choice. You know, if Perfect's – I don't know what the plan was had Perfect not had the back injury. He'd have the Intercontinental title for a long time at this yes. point. So he was probably eventually going to drop it. Maybe it the plan was always to drop it to Brett. Spoiler alert. But um, Davy Boy was not the guy to drop it to. 
No, I mean, we said before, Bullock really hadn't done anything since he'd come back. And all of a sudden, he's like, just, I mean, he'd done the Wardlord thing, but that was, as you talked about, that kind of was awful. Um, the match wasn't bad, but the actual. Well, I mean, yeah, for the Warlord, it was like, you know, I mean, it was, you know, might as well have been like Omega Okada for him and his career, <laughs> but. That was peak Warlord if there is uh, such a thing. Um, another acquisition here, Wrestling Challenge taping uh, in April saw Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos get a try as the Destruction Crew. Uh, in the job in the can match, losing to the highly regarded tag team of Buck Zoomhoff and Coco Beware. Uh, word I got, what? says Meltzer. <laughs> yeah, rock and roll, Buck Zoomhoff. Uh, word I got is that Bloom and Enos were regarded as so-so, but they passed their audition and will be getting a job. Okay, so we talk about the state of the tag division in 1991. This is another attempt to boost it. Uh, why would you have them lose the dark match? I know not a lot of people see it, but I mean... Uh, well, I guess it's so. If they go to WCW, they can air the match. Okay, that makes sense because I had a question for you. Should Bloom and Enos have gone to WCW instead? <laughs> because I think they would have been a much better fit in WCW. Yeah. This is something uh, that I stole from David Bixen's fan because I think uh, Between the Sheets, they covered this week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how you look at the lay of the land and the two promotions at the two times and what, you know, the Beverly brothers were going to be in WWF, which was, you know, not very good. Yeah. You know, they could have gone to WCW and probably really grown as a team. They wouldn't have been, a, you know, a silly gimmick. They were good Steiners opponents. As yeah. As we come to find through the years. And the Steiners were the tag champs. Uh, they could have slid in. I mean, because I mean, Scott gets hurt in 91, and this is going way off the beaten path. But, uh, you know, you could have had Bloom and Enos come in and basically take the role that they wound up giving to, you know, what, Slater and Murdoch as the hardliners. Which bombed. Yes. <laughs> I-, I liked the TV debut, actually, for the Beverly Brothers. When they, when they are on Superstars, they did some cool moves. But you could just really tell that they weren't going to be over at all and a certain manager did not help yes um they just you know bland colorless didn't really have much charisma they needed a mouthpiece badly and unfortunately when it comes to mouthpieces bobby the brain heenan tragically steps down as a manager uh, to concentrate on his role as a broadcast journalist um the man who as he claims uh, we'll show Walter Cronkite was nothing but a typewriter pusher, apparently, uh, as he says. <laughs> the new manager brought in will be John Tolos using a coach gimmick. Uh, Tolos will manage Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos as a tag team, who I believe were called the Beverly Brothers, which is a name change from the originally scheduled Bomber Brothers gimmick. Uh, and coach will also now be managing Mr. Perfect. Okay. Try to be fair. Try to be objective. Try to be a little bit of po- positive. You know, I think one of the big themes for me is, uh, you know, this 1991 WF television seems so much better than it should when you compare it <laughs> to the modern product. Oh, yeah. That said, the coach fucking blew. <laughs> I mean, what an awful, disastrous first interview that was on the funeral parlor. <laughs> I know Dave has a soft spot in his heart for John Tolos, okay, and is never going to rake him over the coals. But I remember watching this at the time and being like, this is awful. Like, he goes into this tirade where he's just blowing a whistle. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's no Fonzie. Whistle. He's no <laughs> Fonzie, okay? And, like, talks about 
how he was going to replace Mike Ditka. <laughs> and it, it, the gimmick makes no sense. Like he's just a random coach. He'll just coach anything. Like he, he can coach <laughs> wrestlers. He can coach a football team. Like it made no sense. And, you know, I'll give Tola some credit. He's given interviews in the past where he's like, you know, I just didn't really understand what they wanted me to do with this. So didn't it was show. A, yeah. Yeah, really. But it was an idea. Who knows how long-term it was. I think, you know, obviously with Perfect's back injury, I think once that comes about, they're like, well, fuck it. Let's just get the summer slab and, you know, we'll kick the coach to the curb, essentially. But, uh, yeah, that uh, first interview on the funeral parlor uh, was one of several bad interviews we got on the funeral parlor, (sighs) I feel, during this time period. But it could have been (laughs) the worst. It may have been the worst interview in 1991 WWF. It may have been, and it was certainly the only one on the funeral parlor where the guy's cutting his promo while he's got his whistle in his mouth, so he's fucking whistling with every sentence he's trying to say. It's just, again, it's just like, talk about, like, the Vince McMahon stereotypical, prototypical caricature of just a completely one-dimensional, you're the coach. You wear a jumper that says coach, you're dressed up as a coach, you blow a whistle like a coach, that's all, go, go for it. No wonder the fucking guy didn't know what they wanted out of it. You be a coach. You know that Homer Simpson meme where <laughs> he like steps back into the bushes. Yeah. People share it when they don't want to be there. I felt that's how like Bobby Heenan and Perfect felt during that interview. You just look at them and you're like, oh boy. Yeah. What like, a downgrade for he, Kurt. He's just like, yeah, good luck with this, Kurt. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm off to be a broadcast journalist. Uh, Heenan obviously had suffered many injuries, so he, he was uh, he, he had neck problems and he didn't want to do it anymore. Sadly. I got to mention this, Uh, you know, I'm watching some of the Heenan promos uh, from these weeks we're talking about, uh, whether they're, you know, in the event center or, you know, out here in the funeral parlor, he seemed a little off. It didn't seem like as strong as Bobby Heenan usually was. It was just kind of jarring. I was like, wow, was that like a third straight Bobby Heenan promo that wasn't like absolutely great? And you just never really saw that from him. So I wonder if he kind of knew that he was going to make this move long before he did. Yeah, that's actually interesting because I think the only thing about Heenan during this period of time that I remember being like, oh, that's that's the Bobby Heenan I know and like, is the one we does with Haku, where Haku is like ranting and raving in a different language. And at the end, Heenan goes, he said he's ready or something like that. Just a yeah, that one was off. a good one. But yeah, it seemed like he was just scrambling or what. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he went back to, you know, smoking the sticky, icky, icky, like we talked about <laughs> in the last podcast. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, I just uh, – it, it was kind of jarring. Like, Bobby Heenan's a guy every promo I love. Like, everyone's yeah. a home run. And during this period, it seemed like he just had a few in a row that just were not up to his admittedly lofty standard. Uh, with the Beverly Brothers, do we think Heenan was going to originally manage them had he not stepped out? I think there's a very good chance of that because it looks oh. like they were clearly done with Haku and Bob as, as being any kind of – you know, tag team or anything, really. And they're the Beverly brothers. You know, Heenan was billed as Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills, obviously. Now, they wind up billing the Beverly brothers from where? Shaker Heights, Ohio. A real stone's throw for me. I actually have uh, friends who live in Shaker Heights. It's a very lovely community. And I sadly do not have the WWF magazine that has the personality profile on the Beverly Brothers in front of me. Should oh. we pause right now and I can find it rather easily? Yeah, let's go for okay. it. Okay, I'll do that. Hold on. It, I am back. I have found the article. It is entitled Spoiled Rotten. 
This is in the October 91 issue of the WBF magazine. Deprivation. It's a word Bo and Blake Beverly have never known. It's a concept the WWF's newest tag team never thinks about. Why should we, barks Bo? We weren't raised to care about the misfortunes of others. Sure, I see the homeless people when I peek out of the window of my Ferrari. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed the poor, dirty families standing outside the wrestling arenas begging for an autograph. But you think I'd ever give them one? Not on your life. They never had anything, and that's the way it should stay. Uh, <laughs> the Beverly brothers have lived a life of privilege. Their parents were wealthy, and simply put, the boys got what they wanted. If I wanted a new bicycle, I'd tell my parents to throw my other one out, Blake fondly recalls. But first, my brother and I would smash the old one to pieces. We didn't want some pauper rummaging through our trash and coming home with a present for his kid. This is the way we were brought up. <laughs> yeah, you know what, man? These guys, these guys are setting themselves up for a Bernie Sanders promo, huh? <laughs> I was going to say, what are these guys voting for? I mean, whoa, I'll tell you what, you bring an AOC, I guess, for a feud on these guys, huh? That's, uh, that's, that's something else. You know, it, it's just amazing that this didn't get over. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> you, know? you know, Shaker Heights is a pretty well to do say. It, I think that's like one of the most obscure places to be hailed from. I mean, it, it's a well to do suburb, but um, yeah, I just, I always found that funny that that's where they were built from. I always liked that name. I actually didn't realize as a kid, I just assumed it was a fake name because it just sounds cool. Yeah, the Shaker Heights Spike was their finisher. That got a reaction, by the way. As much as we were ripping on this team and the act and how it didn't get over, um, I liked the finish. Oh, man, that Shaker Heights Spike. They almost fucking killed a couple of guys with that. Yeah, I, I think, wasn't it when they put up the 93 superstars on the network, people were sharing that gif? Yeah. That, that when they, and who do they wrestle, by the way, early 93? The Steiners. Yes, they were, when the Steiners coming, they were the f- first big opponents for them. So, yeah, I don't know. They probably should have gone to WCW. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, elsewhere on the card, however, there were some fucking dog ugly feuds that are taking place here. Warlord and Texas Tornado set for a house show feud, and they start this off with some promos, some inset promos where, during some uh, Tornado squash matches that really don't actually really address anything. They just kind of <laughs> mentions his name and then just says, I'll beat you if I have to, or something. A bit real vague Nothing happening, just they're wrestling each other. Let's just do something to acknowledge that we're doing it. And there's a few other ones like this. Uh, yeah. Bushwhackers v. Power and Glory, anybody? Uh, I will not get into the article uh, in WF Magazine on that one. It is called Calculation versus Chaos. Under Power and Glory, it is a picture of like one of those like, like really old school like little ca- uh, calculators. <laughs> that somebody would have on their desk and then under the bushwhackers is a package of sardines <laughs> uh, we have steamboat and haku is a house show program I-, I do want to mention this by the way i don't know if you picked up on this but i certainly did so the narrative with the dragon we were even joking not to be confused with ricky steamboat uh before they do reference him as ricky steamboat a lot yeah when he's on tv and Vince even mentioned to Randy the WrestleMania 3 match. So this was not the blanket ignoring of history that I think it's been made out to be through the years. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It was, it was, it was jarring when they did it, to be honest, because I was expecting it to be the other way. And I, 
it makes you wonder if they were going to acknowledge that, then why would they bring him in in such a nothing position? I agree. Uh, you know, the, you know, we'll talk about some plans because they did have big plans for him by the fall, but he had decided already that he was going to WCW. That'll be a fun uh, topic to hit on uh, in the months to come. Uh, something that I do not really want to hit on would be a tugboat berserker feud, which uh, <laughs> I. Although it would be impressive if the Berserker could do his finish to Tugboat and win by countouts. <laughs> but uh, never saw a Tugboat Berserker match. Don't want to. Uh, sounds very, very bad. But look, we could joke about these just really bad undercard programs they're doing at the time. But you're watching these live event promos uh, on the weekly television here. Nobody would call these great promos in the history of pro wrestling right yeah okay but talk you used the word jarring moments ago i'm going to use it again because again that's a pile on current wrestling these promos in 1991 and you and i have talked about this already a little bit off air are so much better than today and you had a really good point as to kind of what the difference is actually scrolling back through our text thread right now because I really liked the word choice you used. Where is this? Okay, here it is. Uh, You know, I I had texted you one thing that was much better in 91, even if they were full of shit, all the guys exuded confidence and and acted like they won all the time. It's much better than 2020 WWE when everyone is just honest about being a loser. (laughs) <laughs> and, and to be fair, there was one exception to this and i went the rockers kind of were cutting like the modern style promo they're like you know everyone's writing us off and you know we're you know it's been a tough time for us of late but you know we're still standing you know that's like a very modern shit everybody else like e- even like greg ballantyne and power and glory they they would cut these promos where they essentially completely no sold what happened at wrestlemania 7 that they were both squashed <laughs> in less than a minute And we're still (laughs) acting like they win all the time. And while that's not really truthful, it's actually better. Yeah. Moving forward, because you use the term, and this is what I was looking for, alphas. Yes. And and that is a great word choice by you. Uh, You said, yep, it's a battle of alphas in 91. Now everybody is crying and talking about it being their dream and how happy they are to be there. Uh, Couldn't agree with you more, Liam, on that text. And I I wanted to bring that discussion here uh, on air because I I think it, it really is jarring. Uh, when you compare promos from 30 years ago in the WWF to now. Um, I think it's a great time to bring it up because we're taping this December 13th of 2020. uh, And I think the promos that aired on SmackDown two days ago, uh, it was maybe the worst show for promos in WWE history. You know, I haven't even seen that show yet. <laughs> it's it's to have killed my the opening so se- The opening segment could be the nadir of promo cutting on a major wrestling television show. Oh, the I need Carmella, to go Sa- Carmella Sasha Banks segment. I mean, I, I just, I have no words for how awful it was. <laughs> oh, now I need to go and see this. I did see I, that, the, uh, that the half hour ratings like came out and like they tanked after the first, well, tanked, but they did drop after half, the first half hour and never came back. Uh, you know, it's just like the promos that aired on that show made these live event promos seem like 95 Austin and Foley on ECW television. <laughs> <laughs> My God. 
I mean, it, I mean it, it was that bad. We should also mention you talked this discussion began with the Warlord uh, in his view of the Texas Tornado. I know you were very happy that the Warlord earned himself a one-off against Hogan uh, at a house show over the summer. Yeah, and I couldn't fucking believe the attendance when I saw it, by the way, on history at WWF.com. What was 15, it? 15,000 packed the Nassau Coliseum for Hogan and the Warlord. What do you got to say about the Warlord guy? <laughs> I couldn't believe that he did that well. Yeah, I, I, it was a fresh matchup, I guess. Hey, <laughs> well, to be honest, the Warlord shit. is precisely the kind of guy that Hogan would look around the locker room and say, I want to work with him. That guy. That guy. I want to work with him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just what a lump of shit the Warlord was though, during this time. Just nothing. I, hey, what can you say? The numbers are what they are. The truth is the truth. He, he wasn't really a lump. Though I don't think he was a very jacked up, uh, perhaps piece of dung. I don't know about a lot. God, was the warlord ripped? It just felt like he was gonna like just pop out of his skin when you watch the man walk. He's got that 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 such bloat in his face. <laughs> yes, like he's like he's like pale. He's pale as an Englishman, but he's he's got that bloat and just he looks like he's gonna die of a heart attack. Like just <laughs> huffing and puffing in a match where his face goes red. Is that Brock Lesnar syndrome? But just looks like he's just the death door. Any minute he's gonna drop. Dave Batista's favorite wrestler growing up. It's a true story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody else said they loved the Warlord, too. I was, like, shocked that, like, two big stars grew up loving the Warlord. <laughs> I can't remember who the second guy is. I was like, what? Another one? It's an epidemic. It's an epidemic, yes. That's a good term for it. Oh, God. Uh, Jim Neidhart. Uh, who basically got pretty much binned off as an active guy uh, after WrestleMania 7, is now working as an announcer on Wrestling Challenge. It appears his wrestling days are just about over, says Meltzer, that Bret Hart will work as a single from this point on. So as we veer off from the rather terrible house show feuds, we have the decision here. The Hart Foundation getting split up, which had been in the works for a little while. Neidhart, who at one point was going to get fired, kept on as an announcer, another ex-wrestling announcer, uh, and Bret's going to be the guy they go with. Yeah, and anyone who's been paying attention for any length of time knows that they had kind of put their toe in the water with these, with splitting the hearts up. They kind of did it in 88 for a little bit when Brett feuded with bad news, but they put them back together. 89, they were working separately as well, but they get put back together and, uh, you know, wound up winning the tag titles in 90, obviously, and we're as over as ever, but it was time for sure. It was Mm -hmm. time to let Brett go as a single, uh, Neidhart as an announcer was not good. I, I mean, I guess they thought, like, with his personality, maybe he could add some color, part of the pun, but all he wound up doing, really, was disrupting the tremendous rhythm between Monsoon and Heenan. Yeah, uh, I, get, yeah I see what you're saying. It's that kind of... Um, I think there's a... They've had this for a long time, where these guys who are successful characters or great promos or show personality, they give them a go because you never know when they're going to get a Jesse, you never know when they're going to get a Billy Graham, you know? You, you don't know which way it's going to go, so... Uh, but, but, <laughs> and Lord knows those are the opposite ends of the spectrum, isn't yes, it? Yes, they are. Yes, they God, are. God, Billy Graham was horrible at SummerSlam. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, brother! Yeah, everything. Come on, brother! Yeah, brother! Oh, man. I never, I never thought I'd be so happy to see Jim Neidart back in the ring, but by the end of this, uh, this, this year, when, he, when they team up with Owen... Thank God. Yeah, yeah, you took the word dry my mind. The new foundation that would be uh, appropriately named. Uh, let's go to Brett, because that's obviously what people want to hear about. His first 
what I would call major match of the singles run. A good one. Uh, as him and Teddy Biasi do a double count out on Saturday night's main event. We talked about mm-hmm. that a little bit on the last episode. Roddy Piper gets involved. Kind of a slow build, though, overall for Brett. He's not given a feud right off the rip. He is given a lot of TV squashes, which is smart. Yep. And then as time wears on and we get to the end of June, you see him start or you hear him starting to mention Mr. Perfect in the Intercontinental title. And I'd be really interested. I can't remember uh, if Brett talks about in his book or not, if he was always the original plan to get the IC title at the end of the summer. He uh, so in his book he mentions how after WrestleMania seven he he was eyeing up the Intercontinental title because Perfect was champ and he was thinking that would be where I could go, and he thought that he would benefit from being the second guy to work with Perfect, not the first. He didn't see Perfect losing it right after WrestleMania seven, so he was really kind of happy when the Bulldog got the feud, not him, because he was thinking, okay, well he's not. I don't think that Davey's getting it. So I, he saw the window of opportunity as being the, the guy to work. Because obviously, you know, with Perfect having the belt as long as he'd had it, like you say, it did feel around the time of WrestleMania 7, like you said, we talked about it, I was surprised the boss man didn't win. But you see why he didn't. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like they were looking for the right guy. And Brett kind of comes along, good timing. You know, and again, you compare him to the guys in the middle. If they weren't going to do anything really with Steamboat, and Davey is kind of a, a damp squib. Brett kind of is the guy. He's the guy with the, with the momentum. Yeah, and we mentioned in the last episode he was supposed to wrestle Steamboat in St. Louis at that WrestleFest show. But yeah. uh, injuries and no-shows prevented that. That's too bad. Uh, while on TV, the Hart Foundation split was very much a hard split, at the house shows, not so much. They were still teaming up as late as the July 1st show in Madison Square Garden against the Nasty Boys. Which then they always have this thing where they just go back to it. Yeah, and then they teamed up in Japan too. They did matches against the Rockers around this time yep. and some other places. So yeah, it was not a hard split on the house shows. Again, it feels like for the third time they're kind of doing toe in the water with Brett. Okay, is this guy going to be a great single? And luckily, and uh, for Brett, third time with the charm. Yes, indeed, they go all the way. They commit to it, and we'll uh, also be talking about that in the following parts here. However. One of the other major feuds post-WrestleMania 7, of course, was the Virgil-Ted DiBiase-Roddy Piper saga. And this note from The Observer here, I could have sworn was going to be a note that just was like a funny little tidbit uh, that they did only on house shows and never made it to television. And I was quite wrong, Kyle. Virgil will be dressed up like a woman called Virgilina and be in Roddy Piper's corner for matches against Ted DiBiase for the rest of the summer. Virgilina, Virgil's sister. What the fuck was this? Or, as you know him, Virgil, yes, in drag, pretending <laughs> to be a woman. Uh, this feud took a real downward turn, didn't it? <laughs> we, we were quite complimentary heading to WrestleMania. The Virgil turn itself is perfectly executed. And some of the promos were really good. I, I, the DiBiase one you yep. singled out in particular. But this was odd. I had to look this up. And I found a promo they did a, for a localized market. I don't know what market it was, but I think you're going to play it right now. Yeah, listeners, get a load of this. Sean DiBiase, you figured I was lying, didn't you? Huh? You figured that this wasn't Virgilina, huh? Hold on, let me refresh your memory. Stand that way there, big girl. Is it all coming back to you now, Teddy Bear? Huh? How about Harry Sherry, huh? Oh, Sherry! If you think you're going to do something to hot one, well, I'm hot too. Real hot. And if you get 
Bam! 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 Yeah! Because I am very... Oh! I am so excited! <laughs> you kiss me and I'll... That's something. <laughs> yeah, it's something, all right. The bit with Piper at the end. I mean... He... <laughs> I'll give him this. It looked like they were having fun, the two of them, right? Um, <laughs> so, it's something that you should really not just listen to, but go and watch. If you just type... Uh, Piper Virgilina, I think it comes up pretty easily, the one uh, that we shared there. I think it's June 15th. If, am I correct it. there? Liam? Yeah, that's it. That's okay. it. Okay, June 15th uh, is the date that that promo aired somewhere locally. Um, I want to mention somebody else that was all over TV during this time period oh, because please, I was shocked please. you left this out of the notes originally, and I am not going to allow you uh, <laughs> to skip over this. Well, you know why. I hate this fucking guy. Erwin R. Scheister is all over the television during this time period with the vignettes, uh, which actually aren't horrible, I thought, where, you know, they show him before he wrestles, going over the various deductions that people do here in the U.S. <laughs> and complaining about them, you know, uh, you know the, the child deduction and stuff, which oh, yeah. my wife and I are very happy to, uh, you know, use every year, of course, and some others. But, you know, he's complaining about them. And those felt like, okay, at least, but wow, the power of pre-tape. Yeah. Because, again, poor Paul Bearer. He drew some of the real dregs during this time period. IRS's first interview in front of a live audience, which is on the funeral part, is awful. He is so uncomfortable looking doing this gimmick. I mean, it was worse than the Davy Boy promo you ripped up. This, this looks like a guy doing the first promo of his life. Yeah, I, I was shocked. Uh, we ripped on his tights in the debut match last time. So yeah. did the announcers. Because, you know, I always remember the brown tights. And so I just brought that up when we talked about him coming in. Well, said debut happens during this period, obviously. And the announcers are like, what is up with those tights? Yeah, it's like they didn't know that it was going to happen or something like that. Which is, it's funny because it's probably the most exciting thing about his 1991 was in those early squashes coming out as IRS and then ripping his trousers off like Angel Gaza to reveal the shit brown tights. Yes, uh, you know, needless to say, there was not the kind of swooning from the females <laughs> of the audience that uh, Angel Gaza draws. I have a question for you. I think it's a good one. What is worse, the gimmick of IRS or Rotundo? Yeah, I was thinking about this this morning, and uh, I feel like it's actually the perfect gimmick for him because it sucks. It's you can't have a charismatic, exciting tax man. So this is like, and what's shocking is this is like the the this is like the big introduction to the mid card on the heel side. Because like I say, it gets so much TV time. They really do focus on like this is like you know this is a, this is something to really pay attention to his early promos when he gets in the ring and the squash matches and just you know gives his little one line about taxes which by like 93 i remember being like not, not really amusing but moderately at least kind of interesting enough for 10 seconds of tv i suppose but here no one gives a fuck about this and in terms of what's worse i don't think there is i don't know if there's anyone in the world that could get this over no, I mean, it just felt like Vince must have had, like, a bad experience with the IRS and wanted to take it out on TV yeah. with somebody. Although we should point out, you know, he was – it wasn't apples to apples, but he was doing the Michael Wall Street gimmick. Yeah. Like we talked about in WCW. And it just kind of felt like, I don't know, well, there we go. I guess maybe he could do this then. It's money. It's, you know, <laughs> complaining. So, But 
I don't. It just it stunk, man. This is a terrible, terrible gimmick. A, ter- a terrible gimmick for a boring wrestler. And this, like I said, this is like the big introduction for a new heel in the first half of 1991, which is just quite jarring for the mid card. Oh boy. Um, another guy who was gonna be a key part of the mid card, however, Brutus Beefcake, apparently suffered some kind of injury during one of those run-ins as the Mariner, which is why he's now doing the interview segment, uh, the Barbershop, rather than coming back as a wrestler, which was the original plan. Uh, so the Barbershop again gets a lot of television time during this quarter. Yeah, and that's the show on Wrestling Challenge. So you've got the Funeral Parlor on Superstars and the Barbershop on Challenge. Kind of a facelift for the weekend shows. You think? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. It's it, the first time since Piper's Pit and the Snake Pit that each Cindy had its own talk show, I believe. Correct? Yeah. Brother Love was only superstars. He was only superstars. And I, think, and I don't remember another one. Yeah. And then Challenge, I think they would just have Mean Gene do the podium interviews. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, you know, you got two personalities Paul Bear and Beefcake hosting their talk shows, uh, the Lucifer interview where jake talks about rape was a barbershop show although obviously we all know what the most famous barbershop angle is indeed um, later this year later this year and of course then you have that other one earlier in 92 where it looks like sid just like put his face full in a mound of cocaine uh, <laughs> which would be cool quite frankly but is, uh, it, is it anthrax in reality i don't know <laughs> oh yeah i don't know I, didn't, I hope not for his sake i hope Beef, it's, it's beefcake shop it could be uh, that's a good point. Well, well, if it's beefcake, we don't know if it is cocaine or Hendrix. <laughs> One of the two. We know that. <laughs> it did fit. You know, you compare this to the atrocious Brother Love show of 1990. This this did feel way fresher. Yeah, so Brother Love was around for three years. Yeah. That's God. a lot of time. For... That's, a lot of, that's a lot of time listening to that fucking music. Yeah. And, yeah. And we'll be talking about Mr. Pritchard coming up here in a few minutes, I do believe. Indeed, because we are segueing into the coming and going section, the the hirings and firings that took place during this period of time. Not necessarily firing, some departures. Uh, Rick Martell has been missing all of his dates of late, and I'm told he isn't injured, says Meltzer, and will be back with nothing as to what the situation actually is. One week later, Meltzer kind of follows up on that and says, Rick Martell has definitely quit, although he's expected back at some point. This is shortly after WrestleMania 7 this comes out. Uh, and it actually takes him a while for him to come back. Yeah, this is interesting. So this is the one area I didn't go heavy into exploring, and now I'm kind of upset. Why does he leave? So as it turns out, uh, Rick Martell's real estate business uh, was getting pretty successful. He'd, he'd saved up That's enough money. Right. And okay. just figured this is the time to kind of take some time away, focus on that. And then pretty much after this, he just kind of came back just to raise a little bit of capital and then go back to his real estate business. That's right. I forgot about the real estate business because he leaves in 88 for a while. That was because his wife was ill, correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, you know, I always... Okay, this is the one I, I couldn't remember. Now I rem- you say that I remember the real estate story. And he does not come back till TV until right before the 92 Rumble. Yeah. He the does, yeah, he does work uh, over in Japan at the SWS show. Uh, loses the finals of the junior heavyweight title tournament to Naoki Sano, uh, a Jushin Liger rival. Yes. Uh, what a odd tidbit that is. Uh, we will also be hearing Mr. Martel's name in a bit uh, later on <laughs> in this very podcast in the problems with big muscles section that you have uh, written. That is not a section where you want your name mentioned. Oh, by the way. And, you know, you talked, Meltzer kind of talked about the out of the blue ish nature of Martel uh, missing dates, giving notice. He gave them 
adequate time to do TV jobs on the way out because not only does he lose to Roberts at Mania, which was, all, of course, always planned and the mm-hmm. proper way to blow that feed off, he loses to Savage, uh, you know, in, in, <laughs> in Randy's first match after losing a career-ending match. And then he also loses to Warrior and Piper on Superstars on the way yeah. out. So they very clearly knew something was wrong. I guess he gave notes. They're like, all right, well, you're going to lay down uh, a couple times before you leave. Uh, because it was very rare uh, for someone of Martell's stature to do a job like that on the weekend television. So yeah. it was, uh, you know, in, you know, I kind of understand the timing here for Martell. You know, as soon as he loses to Jake, his value is probably only heading one way anyway. So yes. kind of duck, duck out now for a little while. Come back, you know, they're going to be hurting for mid-card guys who people remember. So, uh, probably a good call, really, by Martel, in retrospect. I want to do a podcast on Rick Martel. I don't care if no one would want to listen to it. What an interesting <laughs> career. You know, because, like, people remember him as this great tag wrestler uh, in the WWF. You know, Can-Am, Force, even going back to the late 70s, early 80s mm. with Tony Gurria. But, you know, he had these, like, Great runs in Portland in the AWA, and then he's the model. I just think there's a lot there. There is a lot a, there. I want to do a podcast on Rick Martel. Thing, the thing is, like so many fans, their their memory of Martel is just this, just the model, mm-hmm. and it's like he actually had like a runway. He was like a top guy for a long time. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the better workers of the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, he's got his great work body. in Japan. I mean, he has that match against Jumbo Saruta is real good. I mean, yeah, I like good body work. I like Martel too. You're right, though, that if you've got a successful real estate business and you're him, it's probably a good time to bolt because he's not going to get the Intercontinental title. Um, You know, and he's not going to be high on the card because he's been around for a while. So, yeah, more power to him. Yep, yep. Another, we have another uh, departure here. Dino Bravo has quit the WWF temporarily and will work independence, but most expect him back in the WWF by the winter, says Dave. Yeah, he never does come back, does he? Uh, there is an untelevised babyface turn that he does uh, against the Mountie. Yeah, and with the brown hair. Yes, with brown hair, uh, but that, yeah, goes nowhere. Was that mentioned in the Dark Side of the Ring? Uh, I'm nah, not sure. Okay, because I'd heard about it before that I saw it. I just wanted to make a note of it here for the listeners. Uh, he does fill in for Hercules who I presume was injured at the house show. So we get Dino Bravo and Paul Roma as a rogue power and glory. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and on that note, I also want to mention this gem of a house show match. I uh, found that was a re- byproduct, I guess, of injuries or somebody just, you know, not making it to the arena. Marty Janetti and Jim Powers against Pat Tanaka and Colonel Mustafa. <laughs> what the fuck is the Iron Sheik going to do with those three guys? I don't know, man. I don't know. What a so Nope, no rockers in power glory. Jim Powers and Colonel Mustafa are the rescue. Man. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going to that building and thinking, God damn, we might get the rockers in the Orient. Remember that match at the Royal Rumble? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. The Orient Express. Yes. Yeah. The Orient, not power <laughs> glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got my underneath heel teams confused there. Ah, uh, tragic. But there you go. And instead, you get this. Dino Bravo being gone. Didn't miss him. Didn't miss him. It was his stupid fucking hop skip thing into raising his arm that he used to do. <laughs> Hit the yeah, brick. Again, you know? he'd been around for a while. I mean, he'd, you know, 
he'd been on off and on since like 86, right? They bring him in in yeah. late 86, like managed by Johnny V, and then he takes over Beefcake's spot in the Dream Team. So, I mean, that's a long run. I mean, what's he going to do? And he'd, he'd be God damn somehow got you know his, his his kind of peak was like the year before he got to, he got to headline all these house shows with hogan teaming with earthquake and it's like yeah just uh, there, there, there literally was nothing else to do with dino bravo so no, i mean other than turning babyface which again would have been a greg valentine special and no one's cheering that so yeah no no one's gonna cheer dino bravo no, <laughs> no. Um, and you guys they're looking to bring in is Conan. Uh, when Conan starts in a few weeks, says Dave, he'll have a gimmick that shoots lasers, streamers, and flares. Guaranteed success. This obviously is supposed to be Max Moon. Yeah, and it was not in a few weeks that we see Max Moon. I don't think that gimmick starts until 1992. Yeah, I think so too. That's right. Yeah, and uh, Conan obviously was gaining a lot of popularity in Mexico around this time. Yes, he, he was. He was really breaking out, so... Um, he made the wise career choice. Um, you know, I know that it ran afoul of Vince McMahon because Vince spent all the money on the Max Moon costume and Conan just didn't want to do it anymore. But uh, I think Conan's career path was actually uh, a wise decision compared yeah. to being Max Moon. He'd, he'd, this had been in the works for a while because like by the back end of 1990, he'd had a spot in WCW pretty much kind of offered to him and he turned that down for this. And then as this kind of takes so long to get going, he turns this down to just stick with Mexico, which, like I say, when you, when you look at the reality of, of this, it probably was the best thing to do. I mean, AAA catches fire in a couple of yeah. years. I mean, again, I mean, you know, that's always one of the big stories of that, you know, 93 to 96 period. While business, you know, here in the States, nosedived uh, for WWF, you know, AAA, Everything over in Japan was doing real well. So yeah, it's on fire until the peso crash. What night four? I think night four, night five. Yeah, and the headlines four. when worlds collide. So. Yep, yep. And it's shortly after that when things kind of take a little bit of a downturn, and then he re- relocates again. Um, another guy they're looking to bring in here, Steve Kern, will be headed in under the name The Gator. Not confirmed from this end, says Dave. Well, I can confirm on this end that he would be Skinner and was very bad. <laughs> a lot of undercard misfires here on the air. Uh, the heel side yeah so we did this tuesday in texas on top rope nation yes uh, that's a very ago. good show by the way yeah, it was I, I really enjoyed it i texted ryan beforehand i was like hey man you don't dip do you he's like no <laughs> i'm like good because i'm gonna freaking rip on dipping on the show it's uh, disgusting havoc dude when he fucking spits on own at wrestlemania it's oh it makes me feel uncomfortable is that popular over in the uk do people dip a lot over there no not really not at all. I'm glad. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> uh, Del Wilkes, the trooper, uh, was said to have a pretty impressive in his match in Rockford at the tapings in May. Has a good shot of making it in, but does not appear. Del Wilkes, of course, becomes the, the Patriot. But yes. uh, he does not come in to the WWF, obviously. He goes to the GWF. Goes global, maybe. Patriot. And speaking of people that are heading to the GWF. (laughs) Within wrestling, the biggest story of the last week of May is that the WWF fired Bruce Pritchard, who used to be better known as Brother Love. 
Uh, Pritchard joined the WWF in 1987, about the same time that the UWF was sold to Jim Crockett Promotions. While Pritchard was officially fired on Thursday, says Dave, the rumor that he was going to be fired apparently had spread throughout the WCW dressing room the weekend before. Although no word has been issued as to why, other than John Filippelli, an award-winning NBC Sports World producer, had replaced Pritchard as the head of production, didn't get along with him, and wanted to bring in people from the outside as his assistants. Still, when the Brother Love character was discontinued a few months back, one Titan source specifically said that Pritchard already had one foot out the door. Yeah, so I went and looked this up, did some work. Uh, I found an article in the Houston Press, an independent paper in Houston, that Pritchard had done just a couple years ago once he had started the podcast with Conrad. He acknowledged that he was clashing with TV people, so that was absolutely true. And uh, these were his quotes that I got. Quote, I deserve to be fired in 1991, admits Pritchard, who concedes that his first termination by WWE was based entirely on his inability to work with others, specifically those above him in television production. I was a kid, I was 28 years old at the time, and I had the world by the balls, Pritchard continues. I thought I could do no wrong, and there was no way they could fire me. I made myself very difficult to deal with. I didn't want to work with the people they put over me. I essentially said, fuck you, because I was a spoiled brat and I lost my dream because of it. I showed up at the meeting where Vince fired me wearing pink shorts and flip-flops, which gives you an idea of how full of myself I was at the time. End quote. <laughs> yeah, so Bruce is gone. This is, you know, Bruce has been around for, God, a few years now in this role, and company doesn't really skip a beat too much, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he does come back not long after, right? He, does. Mean, he when does. When do they bring him back in? It's like a year later. It's Yeah, I was going to say he's in there in 92. Oh, yeah. And then, um, you know, obviously, he was. I knew 93 because he always whines about the credit Jerry Jarrett gets. So um, <laughs> He that. was not going to take over the company. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I hate Memphis. <laughs> I hate Memphis wrestling, yet... 1993 WWF was very Memphis-esque, but Jerry Jarrett had no power. Nothing to do with him. Yeah. Don't look over here. But again, then this kind of ties into the uh, the WWF's kind of nature to kind of not really acknowledge what it really is. It doesn't want to acknowledge that it's uh, you know, at times dips in these kind of old you know, territorial wrestling tropes. Well, here's a good one here. In the recent issue of License World, a licensing trade publication, both WCW and the WWF bought full-page ads to license its top names. And WCW, by the way, has finally started trademarking the names of its wrestlers here in 1991. Uh, WWF's ad was most interesting. In large letters, which took up half the page, the ad reads, Don't be fooled. There is no pro wrestling story. There is only the World Wrestling Federation. Then, underneath small photos of Hogan, Warrior, and Savage, it reads, Pro wrestling has been on television for 45 years. There is nothing new about pro wrestling. What is new and exciting is the sports entertainment of the World Wrestling Federation, whose licensed merchandise represents the WWF superstars, viewed weekly by 22 million Americans on television and 8 million people people annually at live events. WWF merchandise is of the highest quality from premier manufacturers. There is no match for Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, Macho King Randy Savage, Jake the Snake Roberts, and the many other World Wrestling Federation superstars. Their immediate recognition, power, and appeal is the reason the WWF is one of the hottest licenses. It is not pro wrestling that is hot, it's the WWF that is a sure winner. Consumers seek WWF products, not pro wrestling products. Don't get pinned under an overstocked shelf of pro wrestling products. Don't confuse the WWF 
with pro wrestling, the public doesn't. That is incredible. What a what a piece of business, as you would say. That's isn't that just a great insight into the way they look at themselves? Well, and you know that kind of verbiage is generally associated with the modern, yeah, uh, times, right? But you know, no, they 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 you know don't confuse the WWF with pro wrestling. They were saying that in '91. I mean, it goes back to really, I mean, Vince's takeover. I mean, throughout the 80s, you could see stuff like that where they saw themselves not just as a pro wrestling company, but as an entertainment company. And obviously, um, we see where they are today, where they very much uh, view themselves as an entertainment company that just happens to have uh, pro wrestlers as independent contractors working for them. (laughs) Vince's lifelong struggle with pretending he's not pro wrestling rages on. Yes, and Lord knows it's not pro wrestling today. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) He's, he's accomplished his goal, just not in the way that he'd hoped, I guess. <laughs> oh, man. So there's a lot to take in there. Obviously, Pritchard being gone. There's, 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 there's moves being made in and out of the company that's kind of affecting things that we're seeing on screen. However, perhaps the biggest news we're going to talk about today is the stuff that's happening off screen in the World Wrestling Federation. Oh, this is, yes. This is the problems with the big muscle section that Kyle referenced earlier on. A couple of big we've topics. we building to, to this, I feel, now. I mean, people who know their WF history knew this is coming. But I feel we've been building to this for 18 months. Yeah. Um, we've been dropping these these little tidbits in since the 1990 series started, basically to build up to today uh, and what we're going to be talking about here because we've got a couple of big things. The WBF pay-per-view, the first pay-per-view is taking place in this quarter. And, of course, as we said, the trial of George Zahorian. So let's get to it, Carl. Lots to talk about here. Uh, the bodybuilding war has become kind of funny and intense in the weeks leading up to Titan's first show in two weeks' time in Atlantic City. Last week, Joe Weeder's IFBB, the International Federation of Bodybuilding, ran a pro contest at the Beacon Theatre in New York. The show began with Miss Olympia, Linda Murray, uh, guest posing in a stage set up like a graveyard. The graveyard had 13 tombstones with the names of 13 key WBF personalities. Shades of, <laughs> Hall- shades, shades of Halloween Havoc here. Yes, that's what I was thinking of when I read this. <laughs> the I- then, the IFBB contingent of bodybuilders came out with sledgehammers and destroyed the tombstones. Shades of double or nothing. Yes! <laughs> Is that where Cody got that from? <laughs> it may have been. Uh, a few weeks earlier, when Arnold Schwarzenegger ran the Arnold Classic in Columbus, Ohio, uh, the contest wasn't drug tested as it was the previous year. Apparently, the weed organization uh, feels the need to have the best bodies on stage, and testing for drugs hampers the look a tad, says Dave. And one knows the WBF will put no such handicap to its bodybuilders achieving the look. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a... Uh... As this happens, generally speaking, throughout the decade, when the competition kind of racks up, people's on drug testing kind of, you know, takes a back seat here. On television, we start to see the WBF, uh, on WWF television, I should specify, we start to see these plugs. Eddie Robinson, Jim Quinn, Aaron Baker, Troy Zuccolotto, household names to you all, I'm sure, uh, promos of theirs air on superstars to hype the pay-per-view and to plug Bodybuilding Lifestyles magazine. Uh, Sean Mooney offers the chance to watch some of the best conditioned athletes in the world at the WBF pay-per-view, to which I say no thank you. Yeah, Ultimate Warrior also uh, gives a WBF pay-per-view. Yeah. Uh, there was the constant harping 
on the personal fitness expo that we mentioned earlier with Vince, Randy Savage, and Roddy Piper. Uh, and look, we've said this a lot of times before, bodybuilding, very unappealing to me, and I just cannot imagine many WWF fans became WBF fans. Some of these promos were brutal, <laughs> by the oh, way. Wait, was it who was the guy that at least had the decency to try to tie himself to Hulk Hogan? That one was okay. Yeah, so, so like, oh, <laughs> like at least it was like an attempt to get the wrestling fans to care. It's like, oh, you know, Hulk Hogan gave me his blessing or something, or like yeah. when I was talking to Hulk Hogan in this imaginary yeah, conversation, this was... that was okay, I guess. But I, even bodybuilding, <laughs> bodybuilding. Troy... Troy Zuccolato was the one to say that he's not worried about the uh, competition at the PV because the Hulkster gave him some tips, which I don't know what those tips were, but, uh, you know, I guess at least, yeah, God bless him for actually mentioning, uh, you know, trying to tie it in, trying to kind of get some of the rub. Some yeah. of these other promos, took, you know, guys just, and they're, they're all in the gym lifting weights as they're doing the promo and the guy saying, oh, I'm pumped. Yeah, you know who produced that you know who <laughs> produced that. it's funny you talk about the drug testing obviously um as it relates to competition uh you know fast forward several years after this uh what would it be that ended drug testing uh in wwf absolutely competition absolutely it's the way it goes man when the when, when the pressure's on the rules go out the window uh, USA Today ran a story, which Melton notes read that press release, concerning the first WBF <laughs> contest, which is, we talked about that, didn't we, on the last year, how USA Today was very favorable to McMahon all the yeah. time. Uh, takes place this coming weekend, the pay-view. The story said that WBF will be testing its bodybuilders for steroids. Still, but, yeah, I know. <laughs> Still, McMahon really does have the weeder organization shaking in its boots. They are really going to pull the show off uh, and will have a heavily padded full house to boot. Vince McMahon's World Bodybuilding Federation, and this is the recap of the show, opened to a rousing success on Saturday night in Atlantic City. The first WBF championships drew an enthusiastic packed house of 4,200 people at the Taj Mahal, uh, of which about 2,300 paid to get in. The actual results had Gary Strider and Mike Christian finishing first and second. At least it was no secret the final 10 days before the show who would be finishing first and second. Uh, all the guys had nicknames like Batman, says Dave, and did flashy entrances based on their character. The show, which was more like a Broadway show than a traditional bodybuilding show, was taped for both home video and also for an eventual hot ticket, low-priced pay-per-view, which we'll come to in a second. Uh, McMahon somehow got Regis Philbin, Donald Trump, yep, he's back, and Marla Maples in the front row, uh, and we'll have to see how it goes from here, says Dave. Donald Trump in 1991 WWF multiple times. I, you know, I, I, I was sure to put this in. Uh, this goes all the way back to the uh, WrestleMania Seven, the the uh, when Hogan's posing uh, after he <laughs> yeah. wins the title back. Bobby Heaton is like losing his voice, saying Hulk Hogan posing, Donald Trump looking on, and I'm just thinking to myself, my God, David Duke would be masturbating at the thought of this. <laughs> You know, so, yeah. A lot, too many Donald Trump references for me here in 1991. <laughs> uh, surprised to hear that it was a success in Dave's, the, given the legacy of the WBF. Like, well, I just thought it, like, bombed from the start, but I guess... Well, um, well Kyle, Kyle, no, you were not wrong, Kyle Ross. Because okay. one, one thing I did not put in these notes here that I looked at when I saw you say that, the buy rate comes in. Okay. Care I'll to guess? guess? One dollar. <laughs> Twenty-two hundred buys. 
we get more than 2,200 buys doing this podcast. <laughs> All right, let's talk about hot ticket, shall we? Because this was a thing around this time period. It was hyped heavily in these WF magazines that they tried doing these uh, uh, just kind of short, you know, low-priced pay-per-views. Like you mentioned, uh, one of them was like the history of WrestleMania where yeah. they, they were going to show like the top matches. Yeah, uh, it was you know, WrestleMania History and Heroes or something like that it was called. Yeah, and th- this was kind of the first time I felt that they were, well, maybe not, maybe not the first time, but I don't think they'd ever leaned hever, heavier into nostalgia than they did with this. I mean, they were talking about a lot, like Vince was like, oh, watch these matches. And he, he again, he referenced Savage and Steve. Maybe that's why he referenced uh, him as Ricky Steamboat, so he that's could plug that hot ticket pay-per-view. But, uh, you know, nostalgia obviously is a big part of the current product. Sounds like God is it ever interesting dichotomy, but here it is. You know they're leaning into history a little bit here, which is okay. But this hot ticket thing didn't last. I pre- there were a few other hot tickets. I think there was like a Hulk Hogan exclusive one, um, but I, I don't know if WBF ever made it onto hot ticket. But uh, if it did, I'm sure it, it didn't do very well, and, and the hot ticket idea was <laughs> was dropped pretty quickly. Yeah, there's there's, there's two. Uh, that's probably the only time you'll ever hear WBF pay per view and hot ticket mentioned in the same sentence because it was not. It's funny, though, you can see Vince's vision and, and view of pay-per-view moving forward kind of coming into focus, right? Because he's trying other ways to, you know, get his fan base to, you know, buy stuff on pay-per-view. And we, and we see this Tuesday in Texas. Yes. Coming up later in 91, like, which, you know, they, they had toyed with these, like, weekly pay-per-view ideas, obviously, in a few years. Um, it's still, what, four years after this. The, uh, where they finally go and do a, a pay-per-view every month. But uh, yeah, Vince is playing around with pay-per-view uh, in 1991 uh, in some creative ways. Didn't really work, but he's trying. He's trying. He knows that it's the, at this point it's probably the main source of income for the company. The house shows had been going down prior to this. Obviously, things pick up a little bit uh, for the reasons we talked about in part 2A. Um, however, <laughs> just as he kind of may have a bit of an idea for how to kind of get a bit more money and there is something brewing in the background here, bubbling under... Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> the first major steroid trial with connections to pro wrestling is scheduled to begin in two weeks, says Dave. The defendant in the trial is Dr. George Zahorian, a former physician in attendance at ringside at WF matches in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Zahorian is charged with a total of 17 counts related to illegal drug trafficking. There are nine counts of distribution of anabolic steroids for other than the treatment of disease. There are four counts of distribution of controlled substances, which is Valium, Xanax, Halcyon, or H-bombs in wrestling vernacular, um, often used to kind of um, spike the drinks of fellow wrestlers or people at the bar. Uh, two counts of possession and two, ad- yeah, and two additional counts of forgery and prescriptions. Uh, according to the indictment handed down in February, Zahorian sold steroids to wrestlers between November of 1989 and March of 1990. Uh, I should add in here for the people that don't know much about this story that Zahorian's presence at these events was mandated uh, and he personally was assigned by the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. Uh, the WF did not hire him to be there as the doctor and that that is actually a very key distinction to make when it comes to Vincent Mann's trial in 1994, which I might actually touch on a little bit later on. Uh, the Zahorian trial itself was scheduled to begin on June 24th in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. According to our sources, says Dave, wrestlers that will be called in to testify in the trial are Roddy Piper, Brian Blair, Danny Spivey, Rick Martell, and superstar Billy Graham. That's a Survivor One- Series team. <laughs> 
<laughs> Dan Spivey called an on steroid allegations. That's a, that, that, that one kind of caught me off guard a little bit, if I'm honest. Well, the poor guy, given his WWF run. I mean, Jesus, you, <laughs> the golden boy, wasn't it, man? <laughs> One source close to the case alleged that Hulk Hogan was also going to be subpoenaed, but that Titan Sports pulled strings to keep his name from being linked to this case. Okay, Liam, and this is what's uh, kind of important here. Up until earlier this year, meaning 1991, actual usage and possession of steroids was not a federal crime, although there were laws making it illegal in many states. It's now considered a federal Code 3 controlled substance. The trial is not going to have any significant effect in and of itself on pro wrestling. Well, <laughs> uh, those were Dave's Oops. words, by the way. Little does he know what's coming. Uh, but it may be the tip of the iceberg. Certainly, mm. if something were to come out that pro wrestling's one celebrity used steroids, that could be significant because it would probably blow his cereal and vitamin deals and would constitute the tip of the iceberg, not because it was a wrestler, but it was because the one wrestler who is a celebrity. That, of course, being Hulk Hogan. Stay tuned on that. Yeah, that's uh, quite the prognostication. He actually, Dave, we mentioned Dave had a few lines like this in The Observer. When you look back with retrospect, you know that you can kind of see the storm coming. Uh, in mid-May, in a one-hour period on a cable access station in Tampa, they had interviews with Honest Jerry Briscoe. Uh, the steroid question even came up. Most of the lying in the interview took place here, says Meltzer. And Briscoe said that the WWF tests all its wrestlers for cocaine, alcohol, marijuana, and steroids. And if they're shown taking any of the drugs, they're out for six weeks. And the second time they fail, they're fired. He then said that he knows for a fact that Hulk Hogan hasn't used steroids in years and tried to insinuate that Ultimate Warrior hasn't used them in the last year. Okay, so... The week before the trial gets started, uh, Meltzer says, last week and this week, the steroid stories have and will break in the national media. In what was obviously a strange work to divert attention from the defendant, defense attorney William Costopoulos? <laughs> yeah, maybe? Costopoulos, one of those Costopoulos? names. Costopoulos? We honeymooned in Greece. I, I, I butcher the name, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel terrible. Uh but anyway, uh, Mr. Defense Attorney leaked the, quote, secret names of the five wrestlers Zahorian was an, indicted on charges of selling steroids to. And I have underlined in my notes, one of those names was Hulk Hogan. Dave yeah. says most people don't respect Hulk Hogan, although there are <laughs> many that worship the character. But he's a big celebrity, big enough that when his name was publicly linked to the case, the story suddenly made the front page of USA Today on Thursday. There goes that favorable coverage. It made the ABC Evening News, New York Times, Entertainment Tonight, and was carried by television stations, newspapers, and radio stations, both large and small, throughout the country. Jesus. So all of a sudden, uh, we've got Hulk Hogan, uh, you know, hero to millions of children everywhere linked to steroids. Yeah, so you can imagine the reaction. That Thursday, panic day at Titan Sports, apparently. Steve Planamenta, uh, the company's press liaison, was out of the office that day, so nobody's phone calls were returned. That seems like a real questionable uh, bit of timing, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah that's just, I'm not coming in today. Yeah. Know, especially on a, thurs a Thursday, too. That's not a three-day weekend, you know, with the family. Yeah, Ted Koppel and Peter Jennings were trying to get in touch. No one there to answer the phone calls. All that was released was a three-paragraph statement from Basil DeVito, the vice president of marketing and, marketing and promotions, that reads the following. 
The WWF feels victimized by the tactics and statements of defense attorney William Christopoulos in utilizing the media in a bait-and-switch defense. Dr. George T. Zahorian III, the former Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission-appointed doctor, is on trial. Not the WWF or any WWF wrestlers. Well, give it time. Uh, neither the WWF nor any of its wrestlers or associates has been charged with any illegality. We stand by our philosophy of wholesome family entertainment and the positive example we set for the youth of America. To ensure the safety and well-being of our performers, fans, and employees, in June 1987, the WWF adopted a drug policy prohibiting the use of controlled substances in connection with any of its professional activities. That's quite the statement. Yes, I would say uh, from Mr. DeVito, that's about an 8 on the Jerry McDevitt scale. I feel Jerry would have twisted the knife a little bit harder. Yeah, he would. Yeah, so uh, uh, he, DeVito then does an interview with The Observer. Yeah, uh, Meltzer like, calls him. Wow. I mean, talking about something that would not happen today. Uh, and uh, Basil DeVito admits that steroids weren't part of the drug policy. Oops. Justification. Steroids weren't controlled substances in June of 87 when testing began. Now, we made light of a certain situation uh, that occurred in 1987, which, is, which led to testing starting. That situation was the Iron Sheik Jim Duggan arrest. Which was a cocaine they, situation. Yes, which I, again, hope they were doing lines off the two-by-four. I just can't <laughs> state that enough, how great that would be. Uh, Jake Roberts was a high-profile failure in 1987 uh, and was suspended. That's why he uh, is kind of missing in action in the summer of 87. Uh, February of 1990, steroids become a federally controlled substance. When asked whether they were being tested for, since they became a controlled substance, DeVito said he couldn't answer that question. <laughs> you can, but you don't want to. <laughs> yes, you yeah, can't. No, I can't. You're physically unable to answer the question? I mean, is there something wrong with your phone? Is your <laughs> voice hoarse? I know. Yeah, you don't want to answer the question. Yeah, it's a yes, no answer. And then it's probably not the answer that you want to give. But there you go. Um, my God. I mean, that's that, that's something in itself. Kostopoulos, by the way, the defense attorney, practically indicts the company with a statement followed up in the New York Times saying, I can tell you that the use of steroids is not limited to these wrestlers, but that they are used throughout the WWF. The demands are heavy that they use them uh, from the WWF. They either use them or they don't participate, which is a line that does get a lot of play. Now, at the same time, because of everything that we've talked about there with the New York Times Entertainment Tonight, Hulk Hogan who is just under now a barrage of negative publicity, gets pulled from the weekend dates uh, from Albany, Toledo, Columbus, Niagara Falls. Uh, the reason given was a neck injury, but the truth in this case was that he really had an injury, but he was pulled from the dates because of all the negative publicity. Now, we did mention this previously uh, in part 2A about there being a small break near the end of June uh, for Hulk Hogan on the house shows. This is the reason why. Yes, it is. Uh, and those allegations made, uh, they either use them or they don't participate. That kind of was the basis for the conspiracy charge the federal government was unable to prove ultimately in the 94 case against Vince, right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the following day, uh, Judge William Caldwell ruled that Hulk Hogan didn't have to honor the subpoena for him to testify in the trial. Uh, Hulk Hogan wouldn't have to testify under oath regarding the charge that Zahorian sold him steroids. So obviously, as this is snowball and, and Hulk Hogan's name has made it to the media, there was a subpoena for Hogan to appear, but the judge squashed it. Jerry McDivitt, Hogan's ah. attorney, there's the name, made a sealed motion requesting his client be excused from the proceedings. 
Caldwell ruled in his favor. The only reason given was that the judge felt it would interfere with Hogan's personal and professional life if he had to testify. Well, fuck. <laughs> wow, that's, I mean, imagine all the, all the various criminals that could, well, you know, I mean, this would interfere with my personal professional life. Yeah, I'm a bank robber. Well. Yeah, well, you know, I got a nine to five, too. You know, I, don't, <laughs> I, I can't take the time off. In order to rescind the subpoena, Caldwell had to drop one of the 17 charges against the Selling steroids to pro wrestler John H. Doe, which is Terry Bollier. I, I would like to have seen the subpoena to see if he's listed as John Hawk Doe. Yes, really. Uh, you know, so that seems like a win for the WWF, specifically Hogan, that, you know, he does, Hogan doesn't have to testify um, and that his name won't be linked to the story. Yeah. But <laughs> the wire services, which ran stories tying Hogan to the Zorian case, Never ran a story about Hogan being removed from the case. Uh, to my knowledge, this is Dave talking, the only newspapers who reported on Hogan being removed on Saturday were the Miami Herald and Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Alex Marvez and Mark Madden, everybody. Yeah, yeah. The people uh, who are actually following the business. Yes. Uh, USA Today, uh, that friendly WWF media outlet, uh, did report it on Monday, according to Dave. Yeah. So, man, this is just... We talked before about the the, the spiral of media that kind of takes place that kind of domino effect and how in the first quarter of the year the slow stuff had really put the wf on the back foot in terms of negative publicity and now you can imagine the the only guy who's a real celebrity in the company is now linked to steroids which again is a very hot button topic at the time uh culturally speaking especially in sports and and here we go now <laughs> According to an FBI witness, this is just a gem. When Zahorian's office was raided, he asked for time alone to call his attorney. After several minutes, they went into his office and found him ripping up Federal Express receipts for steroid orders they believed he was shipping out that day. Among the names on the receipts were Roddy Piper, Mike Rotunda, and Alfred Hayes. Okay. Fucking Al Hayes was getting used? <laughs> Why was Al Hayes on the gas? I mean, are you kidding me? Is that what that he's doing for... Who is he giving them to? Who is he giving them to? Is he's, my always, always he's doing it at the restaurant looking all shady and the glasses waiting for his fucking pickup. Yeah, that's what it was. That's why he was sitting there and looking <laughs> at the wall. He was waiting for his delivery. That's what he had. Um, I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, good thing the Mountie, by the way, wasn't there when uh, George Zahorian, uh, you know, <laughs> wanted to have a phone call with his attorney because he would have choked him with the wire. <laughs> but uh, let me tell you something. Uh, <laughs> when you go into your office and start ripping up receipts, that sort of makes it seem like you're guilty. <laughs> As we said before, never a great sign of a man's innocence when they're no, shredding, shredding their papers. Yeah. Oh, boy. But, of... Yeah, th th there's an interesting one here. Now, obviously, we mentioned this, Zahorian being raided. Years later, The Day in New London produced an unredacted copy of Linda McMahon's memo on December 1st, 1989 to another executive in the company, in the WWF. Wait and a minute, this isn't on for my format sheet, Tony. It's, it's not on the format, Tony, but this gives you a little bit of insight into what's going on. Uh, and I'm going to add a little bit of detail here. Sorry, a little bit of uh, unplanned detail I'm going to add oh, for the 1994. I love it. Here we go. So, in this unredacted copy of Linda's memo in 1989, she says that a tip came from James J. West, who at the time 
was the U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania that Zahorian was being investigated. James West, this U.S. attorney for, for Pennsylvania, told Jack Krill, who was working as an attorney for the WWF, that Zahorian was heartened to stay away from him. Krill then tells Linda. Linda tells Pat Patterson, um, which is, uh, if you've studied the, the 1994 trial of Vince, you'll know that that was a, a big uh, thing that the Sean O'Shea and the government was pretty much kind of using as the quote-unquote smoking gun that they knew what was going on was Linda McMahon telling Pat Patterson to cancel the booking of George Zahorian. Uh, as we said before, in 19, you know, previously when Zahorian was being used as a, as a physician at these shows, he was being assigned by the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission, which is in, in essence the government telling him to be there. Well, around this time in 1990, wow, was it 1990? In 1990, the law changed to where they would no longer, the government would no longer assign the doctor to the shows, but you still had to have one. You had to book your own physician. So because of that, the call goes, book Zahorian. Yes. Then this tip comes, allegedly from James West, from, from the, the US attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, to stay away from Zahorian. They cancel the booking of Zahorian so they don't actually get to have... They do not. The WF does not actually hire Zahorian to be there. Had they done that, that probably would have been a guilty charge because that would have been the full acknowledgement of conspiracy to distribute steroids because they knew he was doing it. They couldn't deny it because one of the people that came out that was doing it was Vince. <laughs> so he yes. knew. He knew full well, but they never hired him to be in the locker room. Had they done that, the, the, the trial in 94 could have ended very, very differently. So this little detail yeah. here about shredding the documents and the tip uh, that Linda gets is pretty much a major, major piece of company history. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it really is. Like you said, it's, it's a big smoking gun in the 94 trial because, you know, this obviously does not end uh, with Dr. Zahori. No, it doesn't. Uh, now, on Tuesdays, the trial gets going. Dan Spivey, Roddy Piper, Brian Blow, and Rick Martell, one by one, admitted that they purchased steroids and other drugs from George Zahorian on the stand. Uh, Roddy Piper did not give details. I assume he may have done it from peer pressure due to all the, uh, the fitness expo talk. Yes. <laughs> For the record, just, you know, how that was worded, I saw. They did purchase uh, steroids and other drugs from George Zahorian. Not actually on the witness stand. <laughs> they, admitted, they admitted to uh, purchasing drugs from Zahorian. But yeah, that, that would be rather odd if, like, right on the witness stand, they were like, hey, George, you know, hit me up again, man. One more time now. They admitted on the witness stand that they had previously purchased uh, those drugs. Uh, names of many wrestlers. This is back to Meltzer, uh, including two of the company's top drawing cards since its national expansion, Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper, all the way to company owner Vince McMahon, Freddie Blassie, and television comedic foil Lord Alfred Hayes were among those revealed as having purchased steroids from Harrisburg, urological surgeon and osteopath Dr. George T. Zahorian III in the latter's trial on steroid-controlled substance trafficking. Zahorian was convicted on 12 counts. Oh the trial, which ended this past Thursday, was the focus of significant media attention throughout the country, which scaled down considerably after Hogan's subpoena was quashed. Now, this is interesting because when Zahorian takes the stand on Wednesday, the day after uh, Piper and everybody else admits to doing it, uh, Zahorian admits selling steroids to Hulk Hogan, the name the WWF most desperately wanted to keep out of their trial. Uh, 
the descri- he described as Zahorian did describe Hogan as having a serious steroid abuse problem from when he met him in 1984 until two or three years ago when he claimed he was responsible for ridding Hogan of his steroid problem and said that Hogan hasn't taken a steroid in two years. About that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hogan's subpoena getting quashed, so it's it seems like a break, but it's not really reported. Uh, that he's not linked to the trial anymore. And then he gets linked anyway by Zahorian admitting he sold, sold steroids. To yes. So, um, you know, the hope here was to get Hogan's name, um, you know, not smelling like tea leaves, but at least not stinking anymore. They, they didn't want Ho- the name Hulk Hogan tied to this trial. And the problem was it got tied to the trial uh, here by Zahorian who admits selling steroids to Hogan. And as we're going to, See, moving forward, 1991 gets a lot worse for Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, Meltzer here with a very wonderful summary. After the trial is over, George Zorian does get convicted, as we say. Goes down, does hard time. Meltzer writes, many in the wrestling business are now relieved that this story is over. But that clearly points out the biggest weakness in the business today. The inability to plan and see the picture long term. This story isn't over it's just begun and thus our inevitable decline that we've questioned is the decline of the WWF inevitable we've been asking ourselves that question ever since the start of 1990 i think there were some things they could have done better uh but the bottom line is as we're going to see this uh story is what leads to an inevitable decline for the world wrestling federation i'm interested in what you think Meltzer meant by that quote. Am I dumb and I didn't understand? Like, the inability to plan and see the picture long-term, is is he saying that the WWF didn't understand what the next step was going to be? I think so. I think I okay. think the way I read this, and again, I'll, you know, I, I'll throw this back to you and see if you interpret it the same, you have to think Meltzer, in his position, is talking to the media people. He's hearing the chatter about the story. He's hearing about the advertiser reaction. He's getting a a better sense of the impact of Hogan's name in the trial because he's dealing with the media types. Uh, It may be possible he's even heard the talk about the federal government being involved or interest being there in maybe taking this further at this point. Uh, The way I look at that when he says that, it's the company looking at this as, oh, well, this is the latest tornado in a teacup, just like that Gulf War stuff. Now it's over with. Now it's history. Just like the Gulf War coverage, all that negative coverage, it went away after WrestleMania 7 and it stopped being a hot, hot topic. This will too. It will go away now. That's just the way it is. The difference obviously being the impact of Hogan and his name being thrown around like this is not something that's just going to go away. And the, the, the grand comedy of it all is that the WWF's own actions to try and prevent this tornado from breaking out of the teacup and getting out of control is by sending Hogan on a publicity tour to try and clear his name, which does not go well, as we will be talking about in part three of this series. I, what are you, when, you, when you look at this, and we've talked about a lot of details there in terms of what happened in this trial, Kyle, what is your takeaway in terms of, like, if you're Vince... And this goes down. Are you inclined to go on the offensive? Or are you of the mindset 
that you just want this to go away because I was actually when you look at the way they dealt with the Slaughter Hogan stuff pre-WrestleMania 7 where they just kind of you know go you know, head down let's gun through it and, and get it over with kind of a thing here they are trying to be proactive in the aftermath of this and yes. it's kind of surprising that they do because when you look at this company historically speaking they don't do this well no, it's funny that you asked, well, if you were Vince McMahon, uh, would you go on the offensive? Well, if I was Vince McMahon, of course I'd go on the offensive because I'd be Vince McMahon. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that, that's what Vince McMahon does. I mean, he does. So, look, we're going to talk a lot of it, about this in part three. It's going to be our lead uh, as, you know, all the years of Bobby Heenan trying to kill Hulkamania. It was actually Arsenio Hall that killed Hulkamania. <laughs> um what would I, I don't know. Do you think Hulk Hogan, this is just a weird wrestling question. Maybe this is like a stupid question. Is Hulk Hogan being the champion a problem? Or do you so. think it, like, like during this period, or it's like if the company had been built around, was still built around the ultimate warrior, would this be less of a deal? Hmm. Um, I think. Because the warrior like is not linked to this at all. No, which is funny because look at him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, I think it was a little bit more than trading, you know, vitamins and prayers that you know, got him to look like that. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that Hogan, God, yeah, Hogan carrying the belt around though, you know, like on these shows, um, and in, you know, in some of them he doesn't, but it's it's notable that you know they can say in these papers WWF World Champion Hulk Hogan. It's just that that reinforcement. I mean, everybody knows Hulk Hogan for the WWF, so. Yeah. It's going to happen anyway, but the fact they get to say that, it does make it feel like such a big deal, like an even bigger deal than it than it is. Because st- the company's still built around him. It's not yeah. like a thing of the past. If Let's say like the Ultimate Warrior had worked as well as they'd hoped, okay? And they're moving forward, and the promotion's now built around the Ultimate Warrior. Is this something that's like, oh, well, that was Hulk Hogan, and you can sweep... I-, I don't know the answer to that question, but... Um, the bottom line is, you know, Hulk Hogan, WWF were synonymous with each other. Hogan getting tied is a disaster, and uh, it gets worse in, in as we go in with July with some crazy stuff that I cannot wait to talk about. The Arsenio Hall appearance, a shocking segment on WWF television that I had completely forgotten about. And, um, you know, it completely really overshadows the uh, build the SummerSlam. It absolutely does, and in the middle of all of that as well, WCW fires Ric Flair, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to be talking all about that uh, in part three. This is fucking insane. This is, I mean, as crazy as this period was. I mean, again, we did like four hours on April through June of '91. There were no pay-per-views, okay, except the WBF one, and the next two months are just insane with what happens because. Not only does Flair arrive, somebody leaves. Oh, God. At the end. (laughs) Dude, we've got Hogan on Arsenio, the Ric Flair saga, SummerSlam 91, and the Ultimate Warrior chasing after Colonel Mustafa and General Adnan, and apparently he never stopped running. That is all coming up in part three of, uh, of our look at the WWF in the year 1991. Kyle, this has been an absolute blast. Any final kind of takeaways you want to take from the on-screen side of things from April to, to June? Because, you know, the, the, the pre-WrestleMania stuff didn't really set the world on fire. 
there really wasn't a lot there to, to, to gravitate to. We talked a lot about the main event stuff, really feeling... I, I feel like this three months of television is probably the best three months of television we've watched since we started going from, from the start of 1990. Yeah, and you know what a theme is going to be moving forward? Because we're big thematic people on this podcast. We always like to have the overarching themes. Is the TV, particularly in the last few months of the year is the best it's going to be in 90 or 91, but it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. It, it make just doesn't matter because of the steroid issue. And we're going to hammer that home uh, with some pay-per-view buy rates and other stuff. I'm sure uh, in the podcasts to come, this was a strong episode by us. We did outstanding work. <laughs> a real Bobby Heenan-esque line there to wrap it all up from Kyle Ross. I mean, I'm just sorry, man. I about half of this show, I'm like, man, this is a fucking good podcast. <laughs> and we hope you folks think so too. And stay with us for part three of this series. We are going to be covering next July and August because so much goes on within this two month time frame, Carl. We're thinking that we're not going to go by quarter here. We're thinking July and August specifically to focus on these issues. Yeah, that's. I mean. <laughs> There is a lot to cover, like we laid out. I, I, I cannot believe, or I, I, I can't fathom, I should say, how long the notes will be. We had about 12 pages for this section. I think the next two months will blow that away. I think we so, too. See. We shall indeed. So, Carl, I cannot thank you enough for joining me uh, on this podcast again, folks. Stay tuned. Part three is coming, uh, covering July and August of 1991 in the WWF. So, for the great Kyle Ross, I am Liam O'Rourke. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.